You just heard Eye Master from Entomb's 1993 album, Wolverine Blues. This is the Record Metal Podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Jason. And welcome to Death and Roll Fever here, Mark. Uh, we are in Death and Roll Fever spring chaos for the two of us. So um, I guess for, you know, might, we might actually have some new people that sort of like found their way to us from Venom, I suppose. So if you're... Uh, <laughs> joining us after our, our four part epic uh insanity that was like pretty much the the, the most audio history of venom uh as told by uh you know Jeff anybody Dunn, Jeff yeah. Dunn and Mantis, you know, basically like a book form. Um what's the total bigger. hour count? Do you do you know? Uh like pushing twenty. <laughs> I think two six hour episodes and two four four hour episodes. So yeah. you know um, I mean, I think we talked in part three a little bit about how, you know, not, I don't think out of hand is like maybe, you know, I mean, it's a entomb reference that we'll get to later, but it, you know, it, it went places we didn't expect and, and that's pleasant, but it's all, it was also exhausting and a lot of work on your end from an editing standpoint, a lot of work on my end from arranging interviews and, you know, show notes and different things. And it's just like, okay, kind of happy to be done. So um, but, you know, we got a lot of stuff out of Jeff that we didn't expect. So you kind of just kind of. I did like, not think that we were going to get, you know, four and a half hours of interviews from that guy. So thank was, you. It was, yeah, it was great. I mean, it was definitely, uh, you know, also because there's just a lot of shit going on in our lives that when we tweak these kind of episodes, it's, uh, uh, it makes things a little more difficult. But, you know, in retrospect, when I'm, you know, after I got out of the haze of editing all that stuff, it was like, that's a pretty awesome, you know, kind of a like an evergreen document of venom yeah yeah that's something you could kind of share with people like forever you know it's like okay this is not like the definitive but it's pretty damn close to definitive at least through like you know a lot of different perspectives and and uh yeah and all these guys are getting older and you know who knows if somebody gets hit by a bus like you know like with their eric wagner piece like yeah yeah, that might have been the last interview he did who knows at least i asked like recorded one yeah i think um as Even, as I, you know, as we age, I want to make sure we <laughs> document all this crap. It's funny. I, um, so, you know, again, if you're joining us for, you know, new or, you know, for the first time, um, you know, we do long form podcasting as it's called, uh, deep dives, uh, lots of historical sort of stuff and, and things like that. But, you know, it's funny. I was talking to Mark before, um, we, we hit record and I, I've recently gone to a couple shows, um, morbid angel and then the death to all show. And I went with, Jason Duza, one of my former students, um, and then Stan, uh, and they both host uh, Into the Combine podcast. And we, you know, we, we drove together, carpooled, and it was just kind of like a couple of couple of generations of podcast metal podcasters just kind of talking shop a little about like the good, the bad, and the ugly of like, you know, what what their philosophy is that they want to do and ours and stuff. And I, I said, you know, one of the things Mark and I have always wanted to do with Requiem, that's kind of always been our thesis statement, is like. You know, I think it's cool that like there's a timeliness to like our episodes, you know, that we're mm-hmm. not just doing like uh, cutting edge album releases and stuff. And and sure, there's pop culture references that are, you know, not as relevant now uh, as they were, you know, 10 years ago or, or whatever, 10 years in the future. They won't. Oh, be. sure, sure. But like for the most part, like you could like pull those Venom episodes out like 15 years from now and get like the story of Venom like 20 years mm-hmm. from now, you know what I mean? And like, yeah. that's kind of what we've always wanted to do is create these like permanent records, these, you know, audio documentaries, uh, if you will. Um, 
I think we did that with Venom. And so I'm, I'm pretty happy and proud of that, you know, to, to say the least. And well, and now we are completely, um, unless you use an aggregator that puts ads in, um, or, you know, Spotify probably does on their end, but we had, we are completely our own entity. Now we don't have any, we're actually paying for our service now. Yeah. So we, um, we don't have any weird pre-roll stuff that, you know, you get out of like free services. So for the most part, if you do- download directly from, you know, some of the aggregators or from Apple music, um, we are totally our own thing. So yeah, that's been years in the making. Jordan Bondo has helped out tremendously with that. That guy's a, and, uh, a hero, you know, for what he did. And speaking of which, if you are getting this um, and you subscribe through iTunes or Apple Music, make sure that you are subscribed to like our new, new feed as well. Um, I know you dropped in both feeds, I think, again, didn't you? Just for now to be safe because I saw it. Yeah, come up that's what I was going to keep doing for a while. Yeah, just until everybody's subscribed. I mean, and I'm, I need else, to see if I can get that other thing fixed combined. as well. I've just not yeah. had the time. So Spotify is combined. So like we managed to just like switch Spotify over. So anybody that subscribed on Spotify, and I think the same thing with us, I reached out to Stitcher as well. Mm -hmm. Um, If you folks out there have other aggregates that for some reason aren't getting the new episodes, let me know. I, you know, we'll do our best. I I don't have (laughs) contacts for all these aggregates. You hope that when you drop like an RSS feed through, like, I guess TalkShoe used to host us. Do we have like a new host then? Who's hosting us now? Castos, but they're, but we're paying for the service. So it is, uh, they don't, they can't tell us to do anything. They can't give us any pre-roll ads or, you know, cause like hearing, you know, a a healthcare ad right before the podcast seems like out of character. (laughs) And I just don't want to have any, I want our work to stand for itself and have no advertising. Yeah, I agree. If we have a sponsorship, like a label wants, we've done that in the past, like a label came in and gave us a bunch of product or something like, but that was something where we reached out and said, Hey, we'd like to do an episode on this band. Yeah. Something like that. But yeah, I don't want to have to do like, you know, one of these like things that lots of podcasts are doing where they have to stop and talk about, you know, some laundry detergent or yeah, some like subscription service. You know, Jason, that's real, we're real busy and, you know, we need to have, have our, uh, I can't even think what those are called now, but some of those like meal plan things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like hello fresh or something. I'm freshly. Yeah. <laughs> freshly. You get a 25% discount. If you put in hashtag requiem, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, it's definitely not the, the ideal sort of situation, but, um, and it's not this, we've finally gotten to the point in technology where, it's not as expensive. It used to be really expensive to host your own thing. And so this service is, you know, it's pretty reasonable, but it's, you know, it's, it's paid for by listeners like you. By patrons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Speaking of Patreons, um, if you are interested in becoming a Patreon, especially after Venom, maybe you didn't make it to the end of the episode sometimes because it's so fucking long. Uh, you can go to uh Requiem podcast uh, or I'm sorry, patreon.com uh, forward slash Requiem podcast. And um, I recently, for people that are interested, for people that really got into the Venom stuff, if you've been on the fence uh, for being a Patreon, I don't know if I told you this. I just kind of got like a uh, a creative bone a couple weeks ago and I had some free time over the weekend. But I uploaded several of the um, interview videos um, to our Patreons exclusive and I'm hosting them in kind of a private YouTube uh, feed. Oh, yeah, unlisted? 
Yeah, basically unlisted. And so, um, you know, I'm not saying they won't go up to the general public someday. Uh, mm-hmm. I do want to kind of clear it, you know, make sure Jeff's comfortable with it and maybe some of the other people. Uh, but the cool thing is, is like those interviews are, you know, it's mostly about Venom, but there's also um, some additional little nuggets in those interviews for future episodes. You, you know, patrons can kind of get some insight into some potential topics we might be covering down the road uh, mm-hmm. because we talked to Tom G about some other things and talked to um, King Fowley and, you know, a few other guys, you know, just about some, some other ideas we might have. And I, I uploaded the Max Cavalera uh, interview, at least part of it. I don't know if I did both parts. Cause uh, if you remember that, that zoom interview got like cut in half or whatever, because like uh, my time ran out so like oh yeah before we got the pro setup. yeah i had to call max back up again and stuff but um Pissed yeah so publicist like, <laughs> yeah yeah i get yelled at by their publicist because max wanted to talk too long but yeah so if you if you're a patreon subscriber and you haven't gone to like the patreon site uh recently they're up there and got quite a few likes i was actually just looking at it so i think people you know they're long but again it's kind of cool you get to see like the visuals uh side of of requiem you know like the little zoom calls with tom g and well it's a place too where you can um you know you can go back through and look i don't know if all those episodes are up now to the public i think they are except for like a best of we didn't put that one up there's some exclusive stuff up there yeah yeah we have actually it's quite a few that are um exclusive still to patreons i know we've rolled a few out but Mm -hmm. um the early ones especially are uh are there so yeah, if you if you want to be a supporter, and we'll we'll talk about patrons at the end of the episode because we do have uh three three or four new ones, which is pretty cool. That's great. Um, yeah, so we do always appreciate your support, and especially you know if you got behind what we were doing with Venom, uh, great. But our our commitment, Mark, was to try and do something uh, a little bit more um, almost you know simple, like just more economical uh, for us because we just gotten through the weeds of some pretty wild episodes and and trying to commit to something that was. A little bit more attainable, I think, uh, especially with where our lives are right now. Um, I think yeah. as longtime listeners know, who are up to date, you know, Mark is in the process of moving to one house and selling another house and fixing both of them up simultaneously. And that's pretty <laughs> three <insane>. hours away. <laughs> yeah, it's not, not they're not near each other. And, uh, you know, I'm in my typical sort of like uh, late spring, like teacher chaos. And I've, of course, uh, overcommitted to uh, certain things that I... Um, had gotten out of my life, such as coaching track. And I got uh, like Godfather three got pulled right back in. And uh, here I am um, doing middle school at least. So it's a little bit more low stakes, but I'm the head coach. So it is what it is. There's no, no one but me. Um, and then I, you know, I got, got a little special lady friend as the Lebowski would say. And so that's kind of, uh, you know, taking up some time. And so I'm trying to like it's carve time. time for yeah. things. Yeah. It's, it's good things. I'm not, like, not unhappy, but it's just, it's a pretty chaotic time for Mark and I. And uh, so we do appreciate your patience uh, because we haven't rolled out the episodes maybe on the two week schedule that we normally try to. But I think the they were the still should have content. You know. Yeah, I was going to say you're getting <laughs> made up for it. Yeah. A six hour episode is four episodes that we did in the early years combined. You know what I mean? Like, that's really where that's at. So sure. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know who, you know. I mean, I know we definitely have people that aren't like long haul truckers that listen to full episodes. No. Yeah. I mean, the beauty of all these things is like where I leave off a podcast when I get back in my car, it's, it's there, you know, paused at the spot that I left off. You know what I mean? Like most, most things do that now. So like it's pretty easy to pick back up the, the sort of thread, but, uh, 
Yeah. So what you just heard there, I master, um, you know, iconic feedback, then the, you know, iconic death metal groove intro, you know, Nikki doing some, you know, Nikki Anderson uh, from Entomb, and we'll, we'll introduce some of these characters here in a second, but Nikki doing some kind of sneaky complex drums there. And um, before that churning riff from uh, Ufe, is it Sutherland? Is that how you pronounce that? Cedarland, I think. Cedarland. Okay. And then uh, Alex. Uh, spelled like not, it's not spelled like the tree, but close. Okay. And Alex then, uh, Helid. Helid, yes. Yep. And then uh, Lars Rosenberg on bass. And of course, Nikki Anderson, who is the, the primary songwriter of Entombed. Um, well, this one, he's it's pretty. Uh, that's this is one thing I took special note of uh, was who wrote each song. Yeah, I think uh, you know that one was written by Nikki. Um, but yeah, it was Nikki and Alex together. Yeah, Alex wrote the lyrics, I guess. So you know, yeah. I guess I'm thinking more the music side of things. But uh, yeah, Alex he does quite a bit as well. Um, and he does all the all the lettering on the inside of the album. Oh, that's all, Alex. Oh, yep. cool. Very neat. Yeah, and we've got an interview with Alex later when we get to uh, to ride, I guess. But, um, you know, you get uh, this is kind of you still got the classic tremola kind of frosty riffs and kind of anchoring it back into the the left hand path clandestine kind of era. But uh, you get that also that swanky uh, death and roll main riff, too. So, um, yeah. So welcome to the death and roll years we have for for longtime listeners. We did an episode devoted to left hand path. We also did an episode devoted to clandestine um, and I kind of reached out to Mark. We were looking for something kind of easy that, you know, both of us kind of know almost like instinctively. And I was like, well, you know, what about those, those last two Nikki uh, and tomb records, you know, I mean, those are stuff that, you know, especially like Wolverine blues. I know like the, the back of my hand, yeah. um, you know, and it was like, yeah, let's fucking do it. You know? So I guess, you know, the first thing I would say is, you know, I always like to, you know, give kind of our context a little bit. What are your thoughts, I guess, on the term death and roll? Like, especially as somebody that was very in the scene when this evolution took place. What do you... Well, any... that, I don't think that term was really um, used until later. Okay. It was a, a in a retrospect. Yeah. Yeah, totally a, a journalist thing. But I remember getting, um, you know, buying Clandestine when it came out and then getting a promo tape because we're doing the Requiem zine at that point. And getting like this two or three song promo tape that had, I think it had, the hell was on it? Was that Hollow Man and Out of Hand? I forget what the hell was on it now. Um, but I was it, distinctively, I was like, okay, what's what's going on here? <laughs> I was talking about the Wolverine Blues like kind of demo tape. Um, no, this is just it was a three song or might maybe just a two song promo that came out before the record did for it was just for for publicity there was a special advanced copy of a demo for wolverine blues that came out beforehand um that might have been it it was just it was like a black and yellow cassette okay. tape with nothing else on it yeah. um but i remember being a little like mm, like i i get where they're where they're going but it was just it seemed you know because this was coming out in the midst of all that columbia earache stuff too to where you didn't this you didn't, is actually the second release uh fudge tunnel was first this is the first death metal release okay i uh got some context for that that i'll talk about a little bit later but yeah so it's it's right at the beginning of that whole thing predates heart work and cathedral and, and some of that stuff so yeah and this was just i don't i don't know i think that clandestine was so kind of singular for that's the furthest they could take that style yeah tomb style and i 
I know that all these guys were different. You know, as a kid back then, you're like, you think that everybody just listens to death metal and that's all they want to do. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, Ufe is like a huge, like unsane fan. Nikki was into like the DB crust stuff before death. Metal. And also like a huge kiss fan, right? You know, those oh, guys yeah. are all like into that stuff. Kiss too. and hardcore and old punk, you know, they do a, a stiff little fingers cover. Um, on what I think it was on a bonus track for this album, the state of emergency. Yeah. So you can kind of see where they're coming from more with the, I almost feel like it's more hardcore and, and like old punk than it is death and roll. That the hmm. term's always kind of been, cause people are like, Oh, it sounds like stoner. It's like, I, I never got that. I mean, I can hear some stoner doom influences when we get to to ride a little bit, but like this, I bit. thought was more like motorhead, thin Lizzie stooges, priest early priest you know it's like it's still metal but it's just like kind of more the i don't know like a more like a this is 70s kind of traditional metal mixed with death metal like it's just got like blues rock and roll vibes to it more than maybe most death metal did so i guess that's where the yeah. role part comes from but um i never thought of it in like a stoner capacity that's kind of interesting well i saw people were i was looking you know some things on like metal archives reviews and stuff too and um, just like what people had to say about it now. And mm. I get I get that now, but like at the time this was before that whole kind of stoner thing really yeah. kind of blew up. Well, I think another thing too, and you mentioning unsane, I think like, you know, the the one thing, and I don't want to talk too much about Wolverine Blues yet, because we'll we'll wait till after we kind of go through a little like the history of death and roll, I guess, a little context. But um, you know, I think like bands like Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. and, and some of that, you know, I re distinctly remember the promo photos because I had a poster on my wall. Like they're wearing a Sonic Youth shirt and they have a Dinosaur Jr. hat. And I just remember thinking like, that's really strange because like I, I, th I thought I operated in two worlds. I had like the Jason alternative like grunge world that like was, you know, where I was coming from. And then mm -hmm. I thought this whole like extreme metal thing was a completely other world i thought it was really unique that i was into both and then to like <laughs> find out that like the bands i was listening to were also listening to like nirvana and soundgarden and i was like oh because again like you said i just assume all they listen to is death metal because like you know that's i don't know you know what i mean that naivety of being like a teenager and just kind of the purity of what you think when you're, you're exposed to this stuff and to come to find out like they're no they're huge like alice cooper and mc5 fans and garage punk and noise yeah. rock and, and you yeah. didn't like to to be able to like penetrate a scene back in the 90s like it was way more difficult than like now you could go to youtube and you could probably watch a video that gives you a rough understanding of say like you know like uh like 70s um I can't think of the term now. Uh, like, like, uh, fuck. I haven't talked in two days, so this is my problem. <laughs> but just like, you know, like Alice Cooper, uh, the New York Dolls, that whole like, like glam. Yeah, uh, glam. T Rex. Okay. You could get kind of a rough idea of that without knowing, you know, like we almost had to like penetrate different genres. And so we'd have like, oh, we have to be friends with this punk person so we can figure out, you know, what these bands are or, you know, go through a record store and try to look at the back of records to figure out a lot of the stuff. So it was a really, I don't know when we got confronted with those other things, like, you know, the different t-shirts on, we'd always go and check stuff out. Like, yeah. With, with cathedral, um, like the, the swaddling songs. Yeah. Uh, Cano, uh, Melicano. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Like that yeah. kind of stuff. Like I'd never in a million years would have like 
listen to that but since lee dorian talked about it i'm gonna go check this out and so you're yeah. pulling stuff completely out of context too like i yeah. don't know what the fuck this scene is yeah exactly like i remember having i remember borrowing mellow candle in high school from chris at the same time that like i'm also borrowing like opeth mm-hmm. and to me they like were the same they're like the same thing in a weird way like oh okay these are both i'm absorbing both these at the same time and i had to like connect the dots and I don't know if I ever did. I liked both, but like I would just put swaddling songs on for like girls, you know, or whatever. And they'd be mm-hmm. like, oh, this is pretty, you know, like, and now I hear it. It's very obvious where the influences kind of bleed into Cathedral and Opeth and those. But when you're like, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, you know, you're not, you're not a fully formed human being by any stretch. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this was kind of like, uh, you know, it's, it was cool that it was, there was so much you know fanfare around this this record but it was also felt like a little betrayed at the time because yeah. i was just like man these are kind of like the these are the guys these are the main death metal guys yeah as, as far as my you know when i first saw that uh the hard and heavy video where they actually have left hand path on that video i just thought it was holy shit, this is insane and it's just them, them playing at like mm-hmm. uh you know really poorly shot on a vhs like camcorder mm-hmm. you know and playing like in a tent it looks like you can yeah, barely see anybody yep. yeah and there's just like some solarizing effects and stuff but the the atmosphere of that song too like that made it even more epic because you couldn't see the people in the band really you could just yeah. see hair and all this kind of shit going around and then it goes into the little phantasm part i was just like completely hooked mm-hmm. so having that and then going to you know the crawl ep and then clandestine and then boom this is like a very big but also we had that weird americanized interpretation of seeing the marvel comics bs that was sure. in with it too which kind of like threw me for a loop well i think you guys you guys obviously had hollow man first too right the ep because yeah, yeah. Came out about six months or so so like mm-hmm. it, did that kind of like prepare you almost like it was kind of like a little calm for the storm so you kind of knew it was about to head your way with the kind of songwriting or was it yeah still it, like- seemed, it seemed like we were used to i think i was tempered to i'd say it hadn't even come out yet um like people doing weird EPs that weren't necessarily reflective of the re- the full albums. So you thought maybe, oh, okay, this is just like a weird kind of. You didn't think it was going to be like the template for where they were going. Maybe. Yeah, and this it's not it's not like the productions like st- they still have Scottsburg, you know, producing the buzzsaw is not quite as over the top as it used to be. Yeah, and in 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 retrospect, it, it's fine. Like they were always going to to morph. They're not going to be dis- like dismember. You know, yeah. they're not going to be like grave where it's you know they get catchier or something but they don't ever really go outside of this this box and i think I mean, with with nikki anderson being such a you know multi-instrumentalist and having a huge vast interest in all kinds of music like there's only so long that this you know band could really keep going with him in it and i think like too before i, I think we always forget that you know bands like autopsy death even obituary they had some blues swing and groove that was built inside even though like Oh yeah, and you doom know. and everything else. Yeah, like but but like at, at the time you you know you just thought like, there was like a purity to this scene, like it was yours, it was so personalized, like you didn't want mm-hmm. it associated with like mainstream rock, but like those elements are there. Good rock and roll, like blues songwriting is like inside of of a lot of those early death metal bands. I mean, some are like suffocation, they're just doing like you know, brutal shit, but yeah. You know, like I said, death, autopsy, obituary, they had catchy elements, they had hooks that were kind of bluesy and stuff. So 
it's not surprising now, but like in the vacuum of probably 1993, I'm sure, you know, as you said, uh, pretty surprising. I'll, I'll get into my experience with it because this is my gateway record, you mm-hmm. know, so like it's, it is a completely different meaning to me because I had no context before, you know, so, um, but I think if we're, you know, as, as we're known to do, uh, and as probably one of my skill sets, which is kind of the historical context, I thought this would be an interesting opportunity to just like spend a, a little bit of time, kind of what led to this beyond besides entombed, you know, this, this kind of idea of like the merging of kind of death and, and rock and roll or, or whatever. Yeah. You know, what was the death metal precedent? And I think like, you know, Finland seems to be kind of patient zero for, for this It's certainly an extreme metal. And, um, you know, and kind of doing some research kind of came across, I think, you know, really three bands that that have something to do with that, which is, you know, Zizma, Disgrace and Convulse. And then there, there is a, a Swedish band too, that, um, kind of predates what Entombed was doing and that's uh furball. And we'll, we'll kind of talk mm-hmm. a little more about them as well, but, um, I kind of consulted the the writing ways to misery, the the history of Finnish death metal, just to kind of see what they had to say. And it's written by uh, Marcus uh, Makkonen, M A K K O N E N. And um, so I'll kind of read a, a little bit from that. And the first thing I wanted to sort of read from is it's in one of the opening chapters where they kind of just talk about like what is it that makes Finnish death metal unique, just in general. And and I think that's something you and I have kind of struggled to articulate before you know it's like you know it when you hear it you can just tell it's kind of finished and so yeah i thought this is kind of an interesting little passage that might give a little context too i think for why the finnish bands were so prone to changing so fast if that makes sense you know mm-hmm. sentence amorphous all those kind of bands even bands we're not kind of talking about tonight so um yeah zisma like started his grind and yeah, yeah like all those bands it seemed like um a lot of those Finnish bands were just completely enraptured by Carcass. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have a great Jeff Walker quote when we get to Zizma in a second. So, so bear with me here as I, I read like a, a couple pages from from this. Where again, they're I think they're offering context for what was so singular about the Finnish scene that will eventually get us to sort of death and roll. So he says, uh, so there was an audible obscurity in songwriting that defined Finnish death metal in the very beginning, individualism and sometimes even plain weirdness. There was de- there there was downtune, often quite fuzzy and suffocating sound too, often made with cheap equipment and to the absolute horror and dismay of the recording engineers of the time. <laughs> there were the deep, guttural, and plain, ugly, grawled vocals and demo-level art full of skulls, death, and ooze. Yet an even more defining element to finish death metal was arguably the constant yearning for change, to evolve and avoid stagnation. This is a natural continuation of the ideology of not wanting to sound like anybody else, of course. Not even like your own band. (laughs) When a style has been established and recognized, throughout its existence, early Finnish death metal was always in a state of flux, constantly evolving, reaching for even more bizarre outcomes. Often this meant leaping out of the death metal box altogether, or at least defying the genre's conventions to the very end. Form, vocalist of one of the earliest Finnish extreme metal bands in history, Black Crucifixion, believes that it is all due to the fact that everybody in the Finnish scene in the early days was very, very young in age. Quote, to notice that all the guys in the scene were young and that a teenager's mind can abruptly change and get bored as quickly is the key to the whole era. We were under the impression that doing the same thing twice was simply wrong. At the same time, young minds open to new things too. You can safely speak of stuff people listen to before and after they got laid, you know? (laughs) 
all very human things. And all, also that kind of stuff people really did not speak of in early interviews at all. Tommy from Amorphous and Abhorrence sees things very much the same manner. Quote, back in the day, we were all pretty young, doing the first albums naturally with the flow of things. But when you're young, things change and musical perspectives have a tendency to uh, widen up. You seek for new things instead of uh, stagnation. Um, This is a quote. He says, I have a bad habit to always create something different on every record, says Kimo uh, Lutonen, drummer and main songwriter for Early Impaled Nazarene. As he told Inferno Magazine in 2017, when he was asked about the musical changes on the early records, quote, I guess it was a bit of a rude thing towards the fans to change style in every record, but it was not intended to, to be giving them a finger either. To me, they were just all natural steps. As everybody in the scene was in their early teens in the beginning, these protagonists were bound to broaden their musical perspective as they grew older. There's usually a point for everybody when they stop listening to metal exclusively and start finding a whole new spectrum of music to explore. This was definitely reflected in the amorphous, shape-shifting manner of Finnish extreme metal, simply due to the fact that everybody in the scene was about the same age. This musical broadening of the horizons occurred within more or less every band around the same time. Um, And he says, uh, this is Kimo again, he says, around Sumi, Finland, Perkel, uh, I discovered a whole lot of new bands and artists that certainly had their say on the songs I was writing. When the mid-90s got closer, I was listening to Dead Can Dance, The Mission, and Sisters of Mercy and movie soundtracks instead of heavy music itself. The fact that you really could not predict how the next album from an early Finnish death metal band would uh, eventually come out soon became a trademark for the whole scene. Chris Reifert, the death metal legend from bands like Autopsy, Abscess, and Death, and a primary inspiration to many of the early death metal musicians in Finland, confirms. It seems lots of the late 80s and early 90s Finns were eager to branch out and add different, sometimes strange elements to their sound, at times sounding like a completely different band. The young and the restless, he laughs. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to fault any of the bands I like from back then for changing. For some reason, it seemed natural. Whether it worked perfectly or not, it took some guts to go where the inspiration struck, in my opinion. People are much more unforgiving now in that regard. Everyone wants everything to be so fucking rigid and in a box with no room to get freaky. Like the rule book has been written and it can't be changed or something. Hails from me to the bold and sometimes downright wacky early finished death metal, thrash metal, or whatever scene. I have lots of great memories of getting those packages in the mail and discovering uh, another heavy but unpredictable band. I'm not sure why finished metal is somewhat overlooked at times. There's a rich history to look into with lots of unexpected surprises. So I thought like that almost gives a little of the context for, you know, what is, you know, why Finland would be like the sort of Petri dish for a lot of these like kind of weird, freaky kind of ideas, I guess. You know, I mean, what are your thoughts on on you know, that kind of long little passage that I read there? Does that hold true with kind of, you know, you guys being in the scene at the time and getting these weird Finnish releases that seem to be like a new band every time or? I don't know because we weren't really... Um we weren't really in the demo era of that stuff okay it was like you know like the very first like um you know uh early amorphous we had Mm -hmm. uh i'm pretty sure chris had the first convulse record and it was just kind of it seemed more because i think we got after the fact so it seemed kind of more like barbaric than um the stuff we were kind of into at that point yeah Uh, but i remember distinctly with um when convulse came out with that reflections ep yeah we were like holy shit and then that like praxism album came out that three inch cd came out 
And even like, I think some of this even goes back into like, like pungent stench territory as well, which is they're much more like punk rock and just hard rock based with death metal vocals (laughs) and like down tuned guitars. But I think they kind of fall into that same weird category of, but that's the, all the beauty of death metal back then too, is that nothing, no two bands sounded the same. Yeah. You know, you have death and then you have, you know, repulsion and like all these bands have a different quality extremity was the only like common thing. And then Mm -hmm. in retrospect, we go back and try to pick out, you know, journalistically pick out like what, what were these trying to put them in categories and, and see what's, um, what's what. But I think that whole idea of the, the, it's an interesting, the, the, the teenage mind being like this, you know, it could, that's probably when you have some of the most, the most time on your hands (laughs) Mm -hmm. where you can really, and you didn't like before the internet, like we, you digested what you had or you got a copy of a tape from somebody else and that's all you had. So you really, I think we really listened to the shit out of these records. Yes. I know these records of that era better than I'll ever know other records. I'll never know a record as well as I know the stuff I was listening to between like 92 and like 98 or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was just a very, um, you know, it's like a, a magical time in your life. Like it's nice now that we can go back and reflect on this stuff and, use our maturity and years listening to this music to try to make some kind of sense out of it for ourselves. But yeah, yeah it's uh, it, that's, that's a, that's a really wild time. That's why you can't, a lot of that stuff can't be reproduced. You know what the ideas you have when you're like 13, 14, 15, as dumb as they are, like they're as dumb as they could be. You cannot make sense out of them. Sure. Like, like what Ken Owen was doing with carcass, like, you know, doing like coming up with weird riffs and then Bill would try to like translate it <laughs> into something that was playable. Like mm-hmm. the kind of ideas people don't do that when they're older. Like that's no, a magic time. Of, like death metal could have only been created by teenagers. Yep. I mean, you know, we were just kind of talking about the new Metallica and just like, you know, I don't want to go on that t- tangent, but just the idea of like not really editing oneself or not really like kind of spreading your wings out, getting very you know comfortable. And that, that happens to a lot of bands as they age, they just kind of lock yeah. in what they do. And, you know, you can't expect a lot of innovation to come out of that, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that a lot of these bands, like the, the early finished stuff too, like amorphous sense tales has kind of had a strategy. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and it's just been a slow refinement, you know, like, like Catatonia had this early, we had to bring them up the Paradise lost in every episode. Yeah. For so, sure. Drink. I think, uh, <laughs> you know, the first couple uh Catatonia records, they're all over the place. It's a little bit of black metal, a little bit of doom. And then they kind of hit this stride where they thought they wanted to go. And it's been kind of, it's been yeah. hit and miss since. They did like probably four or five good records in that, that mode. Um, but like, like last fear deal was kind of one pinnacle of that era. And I mm-hmm. think since, since then it's only, it's only been kind of like incremental bits of interesting stuff. Um, for me, but I don't think you can have that kind of as a creative person, I don't think you can have completely, you know, changed. I like, especially in a band situation, like you're known for this. Now this, it becomes a different set of circumstances where early on it's about creativity and being, you know, getting ideas out and stuff. And then it becomes a job and then it becomes something that pays for your family's food and you get these different concerns with it where you have these, I think a lot of constraints that you wouldn't in that early kind of like birthing period of like, 
well, this we can just do whatever the, we want, except I think Paradise Lost is at that point where they can do whatever they want. Sure. Yeah. And it can I, be completely left field. It could be retro. It could be all these different things we're, you know, put together. But um yeah, but that that early I think that early Finnish stuff was just so it was just in Finland was like when did you ever hear about Finland? In, never. Not never. until not until Amorphous. Like Sweden, we, we at least heard about like like ABBA. Like yeah. they were from Sweden, but Finland was just like, what yep. the fuck is <laughs> what's yeah. going on there? Or no, like Norway too, and you know, with the black metal thing. Nobody knew anything about Norway outside of like Vikings. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So there's that other kind of like uh I don't know, that romanticized, you know, thing that you don't know anything about. That's how like European metal was was to us in general. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope that like, you know, throwing this a little bit together, you know, I can kind of like weave a little thread for how all this kind of leads to towards Entomb. That's kind of the, the sort of goal. And there's actually a cool linkage that I'll, I'll sort of get to when we, we finally get there. But, um, you know, really the first band to kind of hit on, I think the band that the older I get, the more I realize like how influential they were. And that's Zizma. Um, you know, I heard Zizma on those like relapse kind of rock and roll records. And I, you know, never would have known until I finally picked up their re-release early stuff, like how incredibly interesting they were, you know, like in the, yeah, the Spart put out a really great uh, box set Yeah, that I yep. just picked up last year of all that early stuff. I think everything up until the, up before the first record. Okay. Yeah. And I've all got the demos and stuff. All the demos and yeah, uh, all sort of together. Um, but basically, you know, Zizma and yeah, which was released in 91 is kind of like, uh, I guess the, the sort of, you know, big bang of, of some of this in a way, you know, um, the funny thing is that it was recorded at sunlight. I, well, and this is where, <laughs> this is where I'm going to, I'm going to get some connections uh, a little bit later. So, you know, hold your horses on that one. Cause it, it, it comes back around uh, that I'll get to. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think that's like an accident, you know, that that, mm-hmm. that kind of happened. But, you know, they had come off like a pretty serious a series of like amazingly influential demos, you know, Swarming of the Maggots and then EPs like Above the Mind of Morbidity um, that, you know, was like grind and death metal and all those kind of things. I mean, Jeff Walker even said like, uh, quote, he says, I mean, they do play Rika Putrefaction better than we ever could. They're more carcass than carcass, <laughs> you know, so I think yeah. that's kind of funny. Yeah. But really it's it's this, and this is kind of from that rotting ways to misery. Um, you know, this is from Oli, one of the the band members. He says it was a Black Sabbath that happened. He says Sabbath literally flooded all over us. I was simply listening to those first five records all the time. From them we picked the compact riff, uh compact riffs, hand-picked guitar patterns, blues scales, and most importantly, the major scale chords. Things got especially out of hand with the digging of Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. Guitars and a national acrobat, all that positive vibe in it really hit home with us. Why am I? Um, so, you know. So it was yeah. major chords. Yeah. So okay. on, yeah, it was our version of a Black Sabbath song, you know, Why Am I, which is a song on Yeah. Um, you know, he says, we recorded Fata, which is one of the Fata Morgana EP um, at Viala. Um, just like our swarming demo on those same sessions. We also did a cover of hello. I love you by the doors. It was never officially released though. I think they were already more or less Oli's riffs that we molded, uh, Fata Morgana songs from we were already heading from grindcore towards death metal. And then Oli adds changing direction was not a collective band decision at all. We always simply just ventured to somewhere. It says opening with a Swain Zizma classic entitled on the hill of desecration 
Theta Morgana is Zizma at their most death metallic. An embodiment of morbid, uh, morbidity is a suitably chaotic piece that definitely left its fingerprints on finished death metal with all its angular groove and tempo changes. As Zizma dug themselves deeper and deeper into 70s music, death metal seemed less and less interesting. The band began slagging the death metal movement in zine interviews uh, of the time, coming across today as unusually artistic and maybe even a little bit elitist. For example, they made a quite a fuss about Janitor, uh, one of the band members, uh, buying a tambourine, quote, to add some color uh, to the material. <laughs> the Finnish death metal phenomenon was barely underway, uh, and Zizma already saw the movement as rather dull. Around 1991, Zizma described themselves as a combination of Black Sabbath carcass and autopsy, maybe wanting to distance themselves from the movement that was fast turning into a trend already. A bold statement, especially in a country that would see the first ever death metal albums in its history released that year. Oli sees the widening soundscape simply as an evolution in their personal tastes in music. Quote, none of us were listening to death metal anymore in 1990. That died really fast on us. I remember buying the Tools of the Trade EP by Carcass and listening to it only once. There it is amongst my records still, but played through only once. Their stylistic shift was not an assault against the scene, though. Quote, it was simply just our tastes in music that changed. It felt agonizing to wait for a new theory on record when you could get a whole discography of David Bowie or Kate Bush instantly. The only interesting metal band for me in those days was Entombed. Back then, a year or two of waiting was an awfully long time. With metal, we took a couple steps back. Me and Murian, uh, one of, that's the last name of one of the guys, got really into Sad Wings of Destiny by Judas Priest and Morbid Tales by Celtic Frost. We actually listen to them still today when we even meet up. After Fata Morgana, Zizma got to play outside Finland for the first time, traveling to Sweden to perform on the same bill as Entombed, Grave, Crematory, and Abath. The wings of Scandinavian death metal had certainly been flapping on those gigs. It is, of course, a paradox of the purest kind that Zizma, a bunch of metalheads already totally bored with death metal, eventually released the very first Finnish death metal album. In 1991, the band had once again returned to the ranks of comeback records and was now crafting a pioneering yet at the somewhat controversial cornerstone in Finnish death metal. Their debut album, Yeah, it is a record that has no musical match even today. One, move it, uh, one moment grooving, just like Birmingham Heroes Black Sabbath, then Atonal Battery the next. Yeah is not only a marvelous extreme metal recording, but also the world's first death and roll album. Um, Oli is not too worried about the paradoxical nature of the situation. He says, if you want to think of it that way, sure, it is funny, but we definitely stood behind the music on Yeah completely. It was the best stuff that was around at the time. There was nothing weird in the situation for us. We were just digging totally different kinds of music then, and we're just not afraid to show it. There were still riffs from Murin on board, but around Yeah, the riffs were becoming more and more my domain. On Yeah, it would be something like 50-50. The most clever and interesting ones are still all by Johnny. Uh, I was still learning to be good. And so, yeah, it says groovy riffs, janitor's trademark growls, and unashamed grinding and occasional nods towards the garage rock of the 70s make it a record that needs to be heard to be understood. Recorded in Europe's number one death metal studio at the time, Sunlit Studios, yeah, boasts a fat middle scope sound that uh, makes the enormous riffs sound exceptionally good, even today. So... <laughs> It's kind of interesting there is some like entombed connections there that will sort of come up later and they kind of talk about like entombed kind of forms like a friendship with zizma and they kind of become pen pals and the same place that zizma and disgrace are from is actually one of the closest cities to stockholm in the finnish border 
Okay. So there's this weird like cultural exchange that's happening, I think. And I think sometimes we forget about the geography of like cultural exchange sometimes and, you mm-hmm. know, cities that are just near each other. That's why Gothenburg, you know, is so far away from Stockholm. So it kind of, you know, gets this weird, its own weird set of influences. So, so I think there was, there was something kind of happening here a little bit. And uh, that's why I think Zizma is like a, a good band to kind of start with. And um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on any of that stuff that they, they kind of mentioned, you know, um, were you guys ever into Zizma in the early years or was this kind of a band that you just couldn't really like find back in the day? I mean, I never remember seeing anything about, I remember hearing about, yeah, but you couldn't find it anywhere that that's I, right. that I knew of. Yeah. And 91 was a pretty uh, fruitful year for a lot of other stuff. So we were finding, it's not like we could afford everything we wanted from 91 already. So it's sure. like, this is something high school kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is, this is something that, you know, we, we found a little bit later on, but I think by that point, like um, when I was, when I worked at relapse in 96, um, that's when Lotto came out that has yep. like the little claymation cover on it and stuff. Yep. And that's that was a, I a huge yep. fucking deal for relapse like they were just they were hyping the shit out of it they thought it was um they always had their ear to the ground for what was slightly off kilter for mm-hmm. what was you know pop, like nuclear blast was more of kind of the the company that like gave you what you wanted and relapse was one that kind of gave you stuff to make you think a little bit or outside the box a little bit and they thought that zismo was going to just be like this huge hit and I was into that record and I played it for everyone that I hung out with that liked like rock records and stuff. And some people liked it and some people just it never took off, you know, for them. I, I think know. it had a lot to do with like knowing the context of the record too, is like where, yeah. how, where they came from. Sure. And I think that made, especially all these underground guys way more interested to see something like, Oh, this is like a, you know, like a noise rockish, you know, alternative record but there used to be a death metal band. There's like some, yeah. some weird kind of like thing around that, that, that I think people kind of had were, some like turbo Negro kind of feel to it a little too, you know, a little, little bit of that. And then there's also like this and disgrace. Look at the album covers. Yeah. They're weird. <laughs> they are not like the disgrace covers like pink. Yeah. And has like some weird, it looks like a, like a dream theater cover or something, all these doors on the beach. And yeah. then the Zisma Yeah cover is like Easter Island heads. Yeah. On this like really blown out background and their, their logo looks like it's more Caius than Caius. You're not wrong. (laughs) I actually hadn't thought of that, but yeah. So Um, like when you see that cover, you're like, what, what the fuck is this? Sure. You have, when, if you see this and you listen to it and there's a dude growling over Sabbath riffs, it's like, it's just kind of mind boggling. But um, how they were starting to listen to old records like that, that's when I really started digesting Sabbath more than just the radio hits mm-hmm. was in the early nineties. And, um, like buying like that, about it before, you know, the, Ozier box set and all that kind of shit, like that's, really that's getting that's into the B sides. Yeah. Yeah. We got the grind Corcoon got the, the, that Oz, he got used at new moon and we just like, you know, deep cut all those records. I think, I think I had the most Sabbath before that. Um, cause I, I was the first one of us to ever have Sabbath. I had paranoid, and then I bought like I think I got Volume Four, and then I think I got Masters of Reality. Um, but we never had Sabbath um, or Sabbath by Sabbath or um, you know my favorite one now, which is uh, why can't I think of it? The one after Sabbath by Sabbath. Oh my God, where they're standing in front of the mirror. I'm drawing a blank. It's been a long week. Has uh, 
on the back. It has symptom of the universe on it. Um, the the sixth record. Why can't I think of it? Anyways, that's my that's my favorite <laughs> Sabbath. Um, the one symptom of the universe and megalomania. They're all standing in those like goofy like clothes, standing in front of a mirror. Um, Isn't that Sabbath? Sabotage. Sabbath? Sabotage. Sabotage. That oh, one. okay. Okay. Yeah. So no, Sabbath Boy Sabbath has like the illustration, the little like kind of creature ten like not tentacles, but it's like that cool. It's got like tied to a bed that have the the front and the back of the heaven and hell thing. Something like that. Yeah, I think that's what it is. But uh yeah, that was that would kind of open the gates because I just thought Sabbath was they always got mentioned, but I just thought like I just heard the hits. I was like, oh, you know, they're probably pretty influential, but it was like deep purple. You know, I heard like the same like three songs. I was like, yeah, okay. You know, like yeah, I didn't get into the deeper cuts, and then you hear, yeah, I think for for me, we talked about this on the soundtracks episode, it was Nativity in Black. When I when I got Nativity in Black and and heard like some of those songs I never heard on the radio before done by bands I was into. You know, Sepultura doing Symptom of the Universe. I was like, whoa, what is this fucking song? You know, like, yeah, where do I find this? That was that was kind of a big thing. But um that was as as like extreme metal was getting popular, that's when people were going back to the well and seeing like, well, where did this all start? Yeah. And it was it was kind of neat because that as we were getting more into the older stuff, then yeah, like that Nativity in Black thing came out, or like Masters of Misery from Earache. Yep. Came out with all those, you know, Sabbath covers. So it was like validating our choices. <laughs> Sure. at the time too so it was really kind of interesting well and it's kind of mark alluded to the song we're going to hear aspirations um you know you, you can hear these just sab groups kind of melding with grind and catchy death metal you know it's got blast but it, there's definitely some breath there and pretty wild like kind of rock grooves kind of integrated through and so you can kind of hear the the impetus for all these like weird you know amalgam of ideas where you can like merge rock and roll you know, hard rock into extreme metal, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's a, a kind of a cool thing. So, but um, yeah, you go from Zizma to Disgrace and uh, you know, they had done kind of traditional death metal on the, the Deaths of God EP in 91, but they were kind of starting, you know, like a lot of these Finnish bands to grow kind of bored with death metal conventions. And by the time you get to 1992's Grey Misery, which Mark kind of talked about how weird the cover was, um, you know, Rotting Ways of Misery, the author kind of says, he says, besides the riffs, it boasts an exceptional fat groove, still quite unfamiliar in early 90s death metal, especially on the left-hand path clandestine worship of uh, My Dark Paradise, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, in My Dark Paradise is not like rewriting like the wheel or anything. It's not like it may be as revolutionary as what Zizma is doing, but like you can hear like chunky, distorted bass, brutal grooves, weird, clean spoken parts that like, again, Entomb would kind of, you know, do a little bit of on both clandestine and, and Wolverine blues. Mm-hmm. But, it's, but in a, a weird way, this is kind of the fascinating story. I had no idea about this band. It's really the follow-up or the attempt at follow-up that probably would have been, well, I'll get into it. It's pretty illuminating. And they were kind of working on a follow-up that was supposed to be called volume two black lizards cry. And it was actually going to come out well before Wolverine blues. And I want to share the little passage um, that the book kind of talks about what happened with this record and kind of like how it's like one of those great, like weird, what ifs like had this come out before in tune would the, this record kind of get the credit more than tune who fucking knows, but it is yeah, kind of, it's a- like, it's like Exodus bonded in blood. Yeah, it's, it's one of those. It's like the bond of the blood of death and roll. <laughs> but um, where is it? Let me find the little spot. It says, by the time Grey Misery was out, Disgrace had already passed the death metal phase, and the material for the second album, Volume 2, was shaping up to be monstrously heavy, but in a totally different way than before. 
Riffs now had groove instead of speed. Constant rhythmical changes had given way to straightforward, effective drumming. Without yet knowing it, Disgrace was pioneering the death and roll sound. Quote, volume two was created in the times of my Black Sabbath obsession, and you really can hear that. The album's title is also a strong hint. We were pretty fed up with death metal. Tony Stranos left and Kimo uh, Lockinson replaced him on guitar, and in the process, we lost Tony's deep growls. We had been listening to completely different kinds of music for a couple of years already, so it would have been quite fake to pretend to be a brutal death metal act any further, especially when we did not give a rat's arse about the particular genre anymore. The second album was written pretty fast after Tony left, and it was recorded in the summer of 92. Grey Misery had just been released. Uh, the author goes on, The album Volume 2, Black Lizard's Cry, would eventually become the biggest mystery in Finnish death metal. The original master tape sent to modern primitives disappeared with the label manager, never to be seen again. A recording that could have been the groundbreaking death and roll cornerstone was lost. The band never made a second master tape for themselves. It was recorded with Timo Tolki, as Grey Misery would have uh, had been. Excuse me. The album is heavy and groovy monster, not too far from what Entomb would release a year later in the shape of their essential Wolverine Blues. The keys to Death and Roll's domination could have been in Disgrace's very hands, and with a history like this, Volume 2 is the ultimate case of so close yet so far. Uh, Juka, uh, from, from the band, holds no grudge, though. He says, quote, When the label and the manager disappears, we had once again recruited a new guitar player and already had new material written. Our music ventured into traditional stooges, kind of rock and roll, and the groovy vacuum horror horror vacuum EP in 94 is a manifestation of all this. We simply did not have any time to be sorry. Vice versa, I was maybe even a little bit relieved in secret that Volume 2 never got out. He said, quote, it's quite a funny coincidence that we had never even heard anything from Wolverine Blues at the time. After all, it was out a full year after we had recorded our own album. If things had gone as planned, Volume 2 would have been out before Wolverine Blues. Still, Zizma had a huge impact on Disgrace Sound at the time, just as they did affect Entomb, too. It was pretty funny to read reviews of Volume 2 as it was finally out. Um, and it would eventually be released by Savard Records in 2011 as simply Volume 2. When journalists assumed it would have been written with Entombed heavily in mind, if we had uh, done that, we would have also won millions on, on the lottery. In order to copy Entombed, we should have been able to foresee the future. He says, we had the chance to release Volume 2 in 94, though a couple of different labels even, but Disgrace was a renewed beast at the time, a more straightforward and hazy rock and roll act. We did not even want to have Volume 2 out. Half of the material was rearranged and finally released on our album Superhuman Dome in 1996. And so it's it's pretty interesting. Oh, there's one little thing. He says, if Volume 2 had been released in 92, we would have been tagged as sellouts and posers forever and would have been compared to Entombed until the end of times. It would have also brought pressure to play stuff we were not fans of. There was only one direction for disgrace at the time, and it was musically forward. So in a way, it's like a kind of a weird blessing in disguise for the guys, I guess, but it is kind of interesting. Well, it's so. funny the the fade track that we're going to be playing. Um, like even the leads sound like Ufe's leads, and, and even the vocals, the vocals sound, sound like, like LG. LG. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's totally it's like, fucking wild. I know. It's, I was like, and not LG from you know from Left Hand Path or from Comacon or anything he'd done up until oh, or from Wolverine Blues. From Wolverine Blues, which <laughs> I think might be the strongest. One of the strongest parts of the album, I think, is LG's it's, vocals. It's his vocals, yeah, because they're clear. Like how, they're clear. Scene. They're powerful. They're gruff. Nobody had. Most people were were not any kind of like growly, gruff vocals. They did not. They weren't done at volume like that. He's yeah. like a he's like a Dio full full voice screamer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
No, I think it's, 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 so when I, I came across that part and like, I, I just texted Mark yesterday and said, Hey, I'm adding one more disgrace song. Cause I never knew any of this shit until I just like looked through that part. And I was like, Oh, that's yeah. kind of fucking weird. So, so it's technically supposed to be out in 93, but it, people don't hear it really fully until 2011. So take that for whatever it is with a grain of salt. But yeah, I think it's, well, that's a, why it, I think Sparts such a, a great label. Yeah. That they like, they're doing like, finish musical history it doesn't matter what genre like across the board they're doing really interesting stuff yeah they put out that dark circle on finished black metal and um yeah i got like the um oh jesus i just i can't think of their name now i I have not talked about music in a while so my that part of my recall is not as uh fresh but the demolish they put out the demolish like demos oh, okay cool stuff yeah, as I well, so. up yet. yeah that's cool that about a year ago or something but it's like Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yep. So let's get into it. We we kind of split this up into two, like I I call it mini sets, but that wasn't the intention. Just two very short sets of music, I suppose. So um, without getting too carried away from ourselves, we're going to hear uh, from, yeah, Zizma's Aspirations in 1991. And then a pair of tunes from Disgrace, one from The Grey Misery in 92, My Dark Paradise. And then from the aforementioned, uh, you know, volume two, Black Lizard's Cry, um, Fade. And so we'll uh, we'll come back and set up uh, Wolverine Blues and Entombed and Death and Roll after that.
was Fade from Disgrace, My Dark Paradise from Disgrace, and then we started with Zizma with Aspirations. So we're uh, rolling through a little kind of just brief overview of kind of how we get to uh, Entombed doing Death and Roll a little bit. And I guess um, you know, the last of the Finns that we probably need to talk about is Convulse, um, whom along with Zizma are probably probably my favorite, I guess, of the this kind of era of, of you know these this group of bands, I guess. Because um, most consistent. Yeah, at least, I'm at least like on the, the EP, the what was the record that came right after it? Do you remember? What's that? Lost Equilibrium from Convulse. I mean, you had World World Without God. That was kind of the the death metal kind yeah, of like then reflections and then the the full length. I feel yeah. like the, that EP would like captured magic a little more than the full length did, but I still enjoyed them both. Yeah, the reflections EP because the reflections EP comes out in '93, but I think actually like the full Lost Equilibrium doesn't come out until like '94, which I think has the reflections EP on it. At least like now it does. So yeah, yeah. But um, you know they released World Without God, and if you're a traditional death metal person and you have not heard that Convulse record, it's 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 well worth getting. It's pretty awesome. They did a really nice re-release of that like a decade or so ago. Um, yeah, I think it didn't t-shirt. put it out. Yeah, it came with I a just, t-shirt. I just wore my uh, Convulse t-shirt a couple days ago. So yeah, yeah just like I the have, purple logo. Yep, got it in the closet and all that sort of stuff. But I guess when it came to making the follow-up, um, as the, the finished um, Riding Ways to Misery kind of talks about, it says, uh, it says, by now the scene was definitely theirs and crying for a new Convulse album. Yet around the same time, the death metal scene was going through a period of serious transition, and it would be only a matter of time before their tides of change would reach Convulse too. Kids were not kids anymore, and the world for the young adult can be quite a different place in the span of only a couple of years. Seems that it's an overriding thesis kind of of that book. It's just like, you know, again, I remember how young Amorphous were in like those early pictures. And oh, yeah. Like, you know, these guys are like 14 and like, oh, shit. Well, it like, was cool that people were our age making music. That's what really yeah. fucking blew me away. Yeah, it was wild. So, but uh, yeah, it says kids were not kids anymore, and the world for young adults can be quite a different place in the span of only a couple of years. Like most of the early Finnish death metal bands, Convulse never released two records alike. Quote At that point, the director of the circus waltzed in again, asking if we would be interested in trying out a new kind of sound. Once again, Juha chuckles. Around the time, Zizma sounded great to us, and we became heavily inspired. The biggest influence of the time, without a doubt. Yes, that cannot be denied, Rami agrees. I had been tape trading with Janitor, uh, I, that's the nickname of uh, Yanni from, from Zizma, and had heard their future material even before it was out. The bravery in which they went for new things impressed me greatly. That big, fat, fuck you and your thing, we do our thing attitude of theirs especially. I cannot deny it, but the least, uh, I, I cannot deny it, not the least. Jeez, sorry, it's weird English, Finnish English. And Yuha was never a death metal guy alone, never. He was already into Pink Floyd and Rush way before I got into these bands. He has always been a musical place of his own. Our drummer was really into the Cure and techno. It was quite a mixed bag, really. And I became a huge fan of Red Hot Chili Peppers. We really listened to him a lot sometime around 92 when the Under the Bridge single came out. If you think of the next album, Reflections, it was heavily influenced by Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Back then, <laughs> which I like that. I actually like that record. That's like the last Chili Peppers record I care about. Um, Musically is fine. I just, I hate Anthony Kiedis's voice. Uh, it's that's just, that's, that's Yeah. You were Frusciante, never. Frusciante's, you know, flea. You were never a big rap metal great. guy though. You know, no. that was never your claim to fame. Uh, it says back then there was a record store called Mega Epis in Tampere. And I really cannot remember what I went uh, to get there in the first place. Autopsy or whatever. And there it was, lifted up among the hot new albums, that damn Chili Peppers record. 
I did not know anything about them before. So I gave the album a listen and was really stunned. What the fuck is this music? Loved it from the very second. And I remember that moment very clearly still. Suddenly I forgot what I was looking for in there the first place as I found my own thing musically. Of course, I bought it and it is one of my favorites to this day. Around the same time, I discovered The Doors, Pink Floyd, and Rush, too. We were already a fan of Black Sabbath and even Led Zeppelin, um, even if for a moment it was a bit too easy listening. But yeah, it was a huge mix of everything where we were at musically. Then I got an advanced tape from Zizma and decided we would like to try something in this direction as well. I don't think we copied Zizma per se, but the timing of things was exactly the same for us two bands. They had Black Sabbath as the main influence, and we had The Doors, Pink Floyd, and Red Hot Chili Peppers. That was the moment we began to rock. Though the sudden change in musical direction from death metal to death and roll might seem radical now, the members of Convulse are quick to point out that the shifts in popular consensus in the early extreme metal scene was always rabid. Uh, everything was happening much faster back then, and Rami is keen to underline that, that same kind of shift that happened from thrash metal to death metal only a few years before. Suddenly everybody went uh, for death metal and thrash metal became obsolete in months. And there's always a determination to challenge yourself as a musician. We don't want to do the same album twice. That is for sure. There's a renewal present. Rami is, of course, the main composer, but we were all involved in the process. We we were like this back then, and we still are today. Our 2013 comeback album, Evil Prevails, was a different thing as well. We have no desire to record uh, Another World Without God. So, yeah, they kind of, kind of get into it from there. But um, Reflections was also recorded in Stockholm's uh, Sunlight Studios in December of 92 with Scottsburg. So again, that seems to be the kind of like uh, the little connection there that the, that, that studio was, was kind of a big deal. But know? it's, it's funny that no, no Swedish band ever sounded like any of the Finnish bands did. I know. I know. There was it's still kind of... something to that, those major chords or whatever it is about that, that nobody else sounds like early Finnish death metal. It's, yeah. That's crazy. Just like nobody sounds like Greek black metal. No, no. Like there's these little pockets of sound all over that just, I don't know if it's from like, I mean, I think a lot of sunlight sound comes from, you know, not having the right equipment, not knowing yeah. how to record this stuff too. So it's just complete, you know, fluke at first. <laughs> yeah. When I forgot to mention too, I was talking about the city that Zizma and Disgrace were from. It's uh, called Turku, uh, T-U-R-K-U, the Turku area. And it's fairly near the border with Stockholm. So I okay. kind of forgot to mention that, but but yeah, you know, I mean, songs like the new arrival uh, from the the Reflections EP or, or you know, Lost Equilibrium were pretty fun and catchy. I mean, new arrival had like techno elements on it. I don't know if you when the last time you listened to that song, it's a song right before Lost Equilibrium. But I was like, oh, that's weird. It's like techno beats kind of like happening. And it's not even like bad. It kind of works in a weird way. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember that stuff just kind of we didn't really question it. It was just like, oh, yeah. And also, yeah. like they were talking about the doors, like I first started getting in the doors in 90 i think like yeah. I, I heard them on the radio but i started getting them from like columbia house yeah you i'm not sure when that uh when that movie came out that was 91 so the oliver stone flick okay so that must have just been kind of like uh kind of like <laughs> in the ether you know really yeah i think so like it was just you know it was about 20 years since those records had been out and just like kind of right now we're going through like the 70s again as far as like you know economic downturn and Mm -hmm. all this bullshit and wars and all this stuff it's like very similar kind of uh thing but yeah back then it was just like yeah the doors i was had like a janice joplin record a couple Jimi hendrix records yeah. um a cream record like that there was just like that 70s resurgence and 
it seemed to hit yeah, late 60s early 70s kind yeah. of thing yeah it's weird like i was just reading the other day like you know like talking about like the 90s nostalgically is like when the 90s talking about like the early 60s music mm-hmm. and it's like, oh okay that makes me feel fucking way old you know so <laughs> Because, you know, it seemed like that 60s stuff just like, seemed like an eternity before. Like, I was into it, but it just was like, oh, that was like another lifetime. You know, like, well, oh. We're, we're just feeling like what it feels like to be, to age. Yeah. To yeah, be like, it. oh, like, I, I know now why my dad thought all the movies in the 80s sucked. <laughs> like, it wasn't his vibe. Like, the the change and the tenor of all that stuff had changed. Sure. sure. Um, I, th- I feel like we have a better understanding of pop culture now than um, sure. maybe our parents did. Yeah, I agree. But, but I still I feel like we're like I can well, if if something's know? good, I can still get behind it. Yeah. Just because it's new and I don't get it or whatever. Uh or quote unquote get it. But like there there's some fundamental changes to in general to music and to film right now that I think we're in this weird like kind of fucking dead zone as far as pop stuff is concerned, like major pop music is all simplistic and very like overproduced computerized and yeah Yeah, it it feels like you know how people were like we need like another punk rock thing to come in again like the you know we had punk in the 70s then we had grunge mainstream in the 90s that kind of shook things up is like okay this stuff's not all plastic bullshit there's like there can be some real feelings and things happening and people want to hear it i don't know if i hear i don't know if i see it with rock anymore you know it's just kind of there's no there's no rock that's Run its like, course, you know. Yeah, there's no rock that's popular in in pop music right now. It's all it's mostly like it's almost all hip hop. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's there's, there's not much there, but it, it goes from that to be like you know, like death metal is as popular as it's ever been. Yeah, extreme know, metal still, in general. Yeah, metal just sells, you know, because people are still kind of passionate about it or whatever. So yeah, but yeah, so I mean, you know, you get into the the song we're gonna hear in a moment, Lost Equilibrium. Um, you get this really great kind of like warm bass driven sort of intro before that you know classic melancholy kind of finish psychedelic groove riff meanders kind of through the music and then the drum drums finally kick in after like a you know like a three minute intro or whatever and it just gets into kind of just a, or i guess what i would qualify as death and roll you know i mean what if you want to call it that it's definitely that sound that feels like that that meeting of the middle of you know 70s hard rock and you know mixed with extreme metal you know it's it's definitely happening here um yeah the opening bits almost like uh reminds me of like ned's atomic dustbin which is a kind of a contemporary of theirs yeah the the, the, the two bass players right? the two bass pairs that had each one had like a different played in a different octave or something mm-hmm. yeah but yeah it takes yeah. like half the song of that little intro until it kind of really breaks into that riff that which now reminds me just of it as an edge of sandy riff yeah, no, it's, it's kind of got some of that for sure. I mean, that intro part too, you know, you take that from like the Doors or Pink Floyd, you know, which they were clearly influenced by this kind of meandering kind of yeah. amorphous intro kind of thing. And know? it still has the weird, the very like kind of like naive, we need to do a bunch of different, we need six riffs, we need five different time changes, which I, I love all that shit. Yeah, for sure. But, and then at the end of it, it becomes, you know, it has like slap bass yeah, and, and has this like what... I don't know if I mentioned this on like uh, the Fu Manchu episode or not, but there's always been this type of song that's that sounds like the A Team van jumping to me. Yeah, like the, yes. <laughs> and at the very end of this, it's like the. 
And they're just like jump like uh, any of those Fu, really like Fu Manchu records. Sure, I just man. imagine like All a, the a band, jeep, you know? yeah, a jeep yeah. going over a hill <laughs> yeah. in slow motion. <laughs> I always, I always used to envision like I, I kind of thought like in an alternative future, uh, like my best job would be is like film scoring, but like not like actually writing film scores, but like arranging the songs for music cues and movies. And I always yeah. had this moment where like a fucking boogie van, like fucking hops over like a curve one, like Rocky, like a hurricane, like kicks in and then it fucking lands <laughs> like right as that, like, you know, like yeah. kind of kicks in. Um, I think that's something I'd be good at is like, like arranging, like what music fits with like different scenes. It's something like I, I've always really honed in on. I know you have too, cause you're, yeah. you're all that stuff, but like, I was just like talking to my, uh, I have a friend of mine that rents, rents from me, Casey. Um, and we were watching like the most recent, like yellow jackets episode, the music cues at the end of the, these episodes, this season have been fucking like dynamite, like Tori Amos in two episodes, uh, Radiohead uh, climbing up the walls in another, which that, that seems fucking savage. Mm-hmm. And then this last episode ended with fucking mother from Danzig. And I was just like, <laughs> Oh shit. Like I rewound it like four times. Cause the music cue comes in so brilliant and then it cuts to black and you're like, that's how you fucking do that, man. You know, there's a whole palette of like these great, you know, some obscure songs, some mainstream songs to just like, like you said, to make these like moments, like even more iconic, you know? Well, and I think that it makes them more like, cause those, those songs are such, you know, they're 30 years old and have all these or more, you know, 30, 40, 50 years old. And they have all this like accumulated, you know, baggage uh, and baggage with them around them. You know, it's like, it it can make the scene, you know, you can either have it play exactly into what the scene's doing or, you know, on the, the converse of that, like have something completely off base or do like a slow motion, you know, fucking scene in like a, I've still never seen any of them, but like a John Wick movie, I'm just imagining slow motion um, yeah. action scenes, but like, you know, rock me like a hurricane or winds of change, you yeah, know, sure. everything's slow motion, just people just like a Tarantino scene of just carnage. <laughs> well, and I think like people of our generation are now doing those jobs. So when we watch like stuff True. like Yellow Jackets and Cobra Kai and we hear these like just fucking like amazing music cues, you're like, okay. These are all people generationally who are feeling the same feelings. And that's why they knew that this song would be perfect for their. And I think like that shit didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen any of that new season. The first one I liked quite a bit, but yeah. um, I feel like in film that didn't really happen until the seventies. Happened in the. Yeah, no, for sure. It didn't happen there, but even in the eighties, like they fucked up a couple times because like corporations got in the way of all that. Like, Fast Times at Regiment High was supposed to have like new wave and all this like great cutting edge shit. But yeah. like one of the dudes from the Eagles, like uh, Don <laughs> Felder or somebody like that, that managed the Eagles, like put a bunch of like classic rock songs, like into the soundtrack. And like, I love Fast Times, but like the only criticism I have of that movie is like, you've got some of the greatest music cues of all time with like the cars and a couple of others, but there's like these weird songs that don't belong there. It's like, no, teenagers would not be fucking listening to this. They would be listening to like <laughs> this, you know? And I think like for me, like uh, I was, I became really hyper aware of stuff like Days of Confused because that whole movie is like the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. They spent more money on the soundtrack than they did the actual like movie, which is incredible to think about. But, um, yeah, you know, I think that's that's just like a thing. So I yeah, think the I, '90s is when that really started to happen. You know, like yeah. in a in a real uh, meta kind of way. 
Yeah. And not, now it's like even, that. it's like second generation into that yeah. or, or yeah. third at this like, point almost. People that were raised doing the things that we talked about on that, uh, our, our metal soundtracks in the nineties episode, you know, like yeah. <laughs> they've now come of age and they're like, Oh, I want to do that again. You know, kind of mm-hmm. things. It's pretty cool. But, um, yeah, so we go from convulse and now is where we finally get to turn the corner, um, and get to Sweden. Um, and there's one other band that always gets mentioned alongside Entombed, uh, the far more obscure Furble, um, and their debut, Those Shredded Dreams, which came out in 1992. And um, they're from Vox, uh, V-A-X-J-O, uh, Voxjo. I don't know. My Swedish pronunciation, of course, is always terrible. And um, they were Johan Lieba Axelsson's group. Um, and he had been, of course, on the Carnage demos doing the drums. Or no, mm-hmm. the vocals, excuse me. Did he do drums and vocals? No, I think Fred was always on drums. Okay, so yeah, before Maddie Carkey was obviously brought yeah. in for Dark Recollection, uh, Recollections, and um, you know, lots of Carnage kind of chunky grooves you'll hear in in the throughout the whole of those Shredded Dreams album. But uh, obviously, I think most people know him from when he left Furball to uh, front uh, Arch Enemy's first three records. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a real interesting trajectory for him. Um, you know. I, I always forget he was in Carnage. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, oh, yeah, reading that. Oh, yeah, shit. I think just in the demo stage. Yeah, but. Because uh, that was such a weird. I think that's why Michael Mott. I think that's where their relationship first happened. Oh, that would make sense. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, he, you know, Amat was in, you know, at least for that record. Before, you know, before, before Carcass. Left for Carcass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, you get this song. I don't, I don't want to go too much into the history of Furball, but, um, you know, you know, I mean, that's. Total death and roll lessons. You can hear a lot of clandestine stuff on this, you know, like mm-hmm. the way you sing and set me free and and some of that stuff. Um, there's like you know, a, at two minutes. There's like that weird kind of a like catatonia doom break. Yeah. Yeah. And it then is. like it ends with a cello. Like there's just so much crap. I mean, in in a way, it reminds me of um, fuck. What's the, uh, the, the band that um, Lars Rosenberg was in as well. Oh, it does definitely have some carbonized feel. Carbonized, yeah. Yep. I, 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 I was thinking the same thing. I forgot to write that down, but I got the vibes from what he's doing. You know, um, yeah. But they were they were one of those bands where it was like this is clearly death metal, but it's also completely it's like Pantheimonium. It's fucking bonkers. <laughs> yeah, but it's still did death you, metal. Did you guys get into Furball back in the days? Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know how much you guys were into those guys. Um, I think it was because when that came out, it was so unique. Along okay. with that carbonized record, we were yeah. just like, "What in the fuck?" Like these guys are this dude's in Therion, and this guy's in Entombed, and they're they're doing this too. Like this sounds nothing like it was just outside <laughs> of our realm of understanding that you could do different things. <laughs> at the I time. guess you know, we could have put like carbonized in this little intro thing, but that that's not. I don't know if I call it death and roll. It's just like death and something else mixed no together. i think with yeah. i think um pungent stench you could definitely throw in there you could throw in like the second desultory record that's when that was stuff was starting to kind of peak that way too but that's that, also like gothic as well i think that desultory may have come out after wolverine blues i can't remember i, I think, think so i think so but i was just trying to think of other other bands not oh, necessarily sure predecessors but like they kind of carried it along that were i mean i think had any like, kind of career i think anything you know, I think you could throw like massive killing capacity in there and even like the uh soulless from grave. I think those are kind of like I think it, yeah, it's like a it's, uh, death it's roll, on the further one of the further ends of it, but yeah. it's definitely in that if you're gonna 
you know, if like to try to like throw things in categories as humans yeah. want to do, yeah. like the, you could definitely have with how like the scene was at that point, there weren't that many bands yet. So like there was this clear kind of move that this is what's happening right now. Sure. So it was like black metal and then death and roll. Yep. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Those kind of became like the two like trends that emerged in like 93, you know? Yeah. And then soon thereafter it became, you know, traditional metal again. Yeah. Well, and you get Gothenburg kind of thrown in there too, you know, the mm -hmm. melodic stuff that's going to emerge kind of 94 heart work kind of really kickstarts that a lot Yeah, you know, with the, the debuts of in flames and tranquility and, you know, stuff at the gates was starting to do, but, mm -hmm. but yeah, so then, uh, then we finally get to this band Mark called entombed and uh, I thought it'd pretty be pretty cool. I think, yeah, I think it'd be a good predecessor to sort of talk about, you know, play evil in as kind of an intro to where, you know, I think, uh, I think it's a cue to the direction that Entomb's going to go. Cause it's, um, it's probably the catchiest song of, on that record, you know, in terms of simple and it's got a little bit more groove to it than some of the other more technical stuff. That's yeah, on Evelyn. And, um, I think stranger Aeons as, yeah, as well has, so has a similar kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. And there's definitely, I, I can tell that there's some carryover songs to Wolverine blues that definitely were written in the mindset of clandestine or parts of songs. Sure. Like is very because it's clandestine and like revisiting it. It's like a super rhythmic record. It's yes. all about the drums and about the the like the drums almost lead most of the songs. Nicky's like the, definitely the epicenter. I mean, not only screaming, but he's it's like it is a drum written record. Yeah, yeah, I, and it's impossibly hard drums to play. They're not. It's not that they're so technical, but they're they're right at that point where you don't really understand musical theory and what you know, what constitutes like a really like clever drum move. This is just like blue collar technical mm -hmm. drumming yeah. in like a way that like some of the stops and, you know, um, there's so many stops and starts on that record. And yeah. There's so many great, like, I don't know, ever, like they really have a live, I think um, clandestine and Wolverine blues almost sound like they were recorded live with the feedback, the way that everything's playing off one another, it doesn't really feel like it was a, like a tracked record. Yeah. It's very loose and organic in a way. Yeah. It's kind of sloppy, but in a cool sloppy way, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, ah, yeah. Sloppy is a bad word. I, I guess organic loose. sounding loose. Yeah. Yeah. There's an openness to some of the things. You know, like a lot of the songs. Technical. Yeah. I feel like they could actually be like, they're one of those songs where if you're, they're playing live, they could play it out for like 16 minutes if they needed to. You know, mm -hmm. the, all this extra like false starts or false stops and just like, you know, feedback holding out and drums. Yeah. Like and living, living death, you know, where like yeah. the false start, like kind of motorhead kind of thing that they have, you know, going on there. It's uh, pretty cool. So, but I think it's interesting to note two things as we kind of go into the evil in here. You know, one, I like I've mentioned before, Stockholm is close geographically to Turku. So there was definitely some cultural exchange kind of that was very natural. And two, that Entombed had been in frequent contact with Zizma since the autumn of 1990. They actually, you know, when they came to Sunlight to record, yeah, they actually spent a lot of time together. They played some gigs together along a crematorium grave. Um, mm -hmm. And they kind of stayed like sort of pen pals throughout that. So I, I think in a weird way, you know, they were hearing and maybe taking more cues from Zizma than maybe what has historically been documented. And again, I don't have proof of that, but it definitely came up in multiple things that I sort of encountered. And that was an interesting revelation to me because I don't know if I would have ever 
put all that together, you know, that all these bands were arriving at, in Stockholm and, you know, they're fish out of water. They're Finns that are kind of staying in Sweden. And I'm sure like the Intune guys, you know, it sounds like they took them out for a good time and mm-hmm. played gigs with them and, you know, just developed like legitimate friendships. And there was probably some tape training that was going on back and forth. And I'm sure they heard like the stuff Zizmo is doing and went, Ooh, well, that's, you know, that's. Well, at this <laughs> point, the stuff had been going on for like almost five years, six years. Yeah. And so like the, they're in full, like, tape trading mode they've been doing this since they're like 13 years old this is like all kind of like peak like oh fuck we found like a kindred spirit maybe with yep. yeah this agreed so let's get into it and then we're gonna come back and set up wolverine blues so we've got uh from the lost equilibrium and reflections uh we've got convulse with lost equilibrium then we've got from the those shredded dreams the title track from furball from 92 and then evil in from clandestine from entombed in 91 
Evil In from Clandestine from a band called Entombed. And then we had from Furball, Those Shredded Dreams, and Lost Equilibrium from Convulse. And uh, yeah, here we are. We're, we're there. You know, where we started at, with iMaster, we're, we're finally back. Uh, <laughs> Hour and a half later, we're back. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> Just a little little side quest. Uh, yeah, but again, way. you know, I you know, do I foresee us doing a disgrace episode or fur bowl or uh, maybe Convulse, you could, or maybe Zizma. But you know, Zizma for sure. But it's neat to. You know, for maybe some people to sprinkle in a couple of those bands, because I'm sure everybody knows Entombed Wolverine Blues pretty well. You know what I mean? Like most of our sure, listeners. Sure. I mean, there's not. Connect the that, dots. Yeah, I don't think there's a, t- a lot of like scholarship about it per se. I think yeah. that's that's at the point where they're kind of past being yeah, really interesting to people. At least the path. And- yeah, or like anybody that was in the know at the time would have been like, okay, I, I, I see where this is going. I'm going to go find something weirder. Yep. Yeah, like, I, I don't remember seeing a whole lot of anything about this outside of just, you know, the normal, you know, PR kind of crap when mm-hmm. something came out. But there's not it doesn't seem like a lot of like love for this record as far as the first two. Like, you know, when they went when Nikki did that um, clandestine, you know, re-recording. Yeah. Live. Like, I don't foresee that ever being like a Wolverine Blues kind of thing. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, it is weird. It's like kind of a. I feel like it sometimes gets like uh the the reputation that like maybe like South of Heaven or Seasons gets where like Slayer fans like 
like diehard Slayer fans like like those records, but like everybody talks about Rain and Blood. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's I mean, there's scholarship on South of Heaven and Seasons, but like not to the level that like Show No Mercy or even Hell Awaits or, you know, certainly Rain and Blood kind of get, you know. Well, I know like, people that thought that, you know, they are of the mindset that that Rain is like the sellout record. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> this is wild. I know there's people that are like Metal Blade or Die. That's that's only era we like. And, you know, yeah. you know, like, I don't know. I get you it. Everybody's got an opinion. Yeah. I mean, I, it was funny. I was just talking to the, the girl I'm dating about like, you know, like I actively try and seek out to like things that like critics appreciate because I, I just kind of want to figure out like why it's appreciated. And that's like kind of my mindset. And I just think there's yeah. maybe people that actively seek out to not, <laughs> you know, and that's that's fair. I that's you know, hey, if that makes you happy, I guess I can't can't tell you. But to me, it's like I don't know. Like I, I can enjoy the Metal Blade and the other eras. You know what I mean? Like I don't yeah, know, like I didn't get into it until it was the metal, or until it was the American era. Oh yeah, I mean, I you know, and then with- went back and I was like, wow, this stuff is awesome. But also, this stuff is awesome. So yeah. I didn't have a problem. But a lot of it comes from like where how much how much dues you paid. Yeah, you know, back in the eighties, to like, well, fuck, I saw, you know, Slayer when they came through Flint and played with, you know, twenty people there. Exodus, and yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, that's that's cool, but you know, there's know. everybody's got an entry point. I'm I'm very much a why not both kind of guy at this stage in my life. I just try not to. Yeah, like, I don't. If somebody's like, you got to hear this, and I know I don't give a shit, then I can say something about it. But most of the time, I want if you're really into it, that's great. Yeah. everybody can be into whatever they want to be in like I, i'm not out listening to like what the newest thing is really as far as like you know extreme metals concerned sure. i'm going back and like re-evaluating like i was telling you this off off mic um or off before we started recording that i've just been listening to where iron crosses grow like eight times this week the <laughs> dismember record and it's like it's just so fucking perfect it's like the encapsulation of everything i love about the band I want a pretty like big, uh, what, do you, what do I do? I want to like a, again, I don't listen to music as much in, because I'm typically listening in class, but I just showed uh, one of my students, uh, Elsest. Um, mm-hmm. He's a huge Catatonia guy. He loves Neurosis and he loves Agalock. And I was like, oh, you never heard of Elsest? And he's like, no. And so like he came back <laughs> like an hour later and he was like, what the fuck? Like, why, why don't I know? But <laughs> like, we kind of went on that. And then I also like went on like a dock and kick one day. I was just kind of like in the mood. I think, mm-hmm. I, oh, I know why. Cause we were talking about dream warriors in my horror film class. And I was like, yeah, I need to, I need to throw some docking on just, you know, like get after a little bit. But, mm-hmm. uh, but anyways, I guess, you know, after clandestine, you know, you get the stranger Eons EP, which really didn't advance in tomb sound that much, you know, like for, for an EP, it's kind of like not, it's not like the crawl EP or. or no, I feel like the, like that stuff was already recorded. Yeah. And they it was ready to go. Them. And they're just like, effort. okay, this is, and that was like the kind of the, the move back then, at least, you know, with Entombed, it was like, you do a full length album, then you do this. And it was a lot of bands, I guess, thinking about it. Like then you do an EP that kind of pushes things in a weird way or puts like a cover song that, might not be what people think you're known for. And then you can yeah. do your next album, then your next EP. And then that kind of seemed to be the way. Yep. Yep. But, uh, but then in uh, March of 93, uh, we get something that definitely threw people off course. I think a little bit, probably uh, the strangely, yeah. I guess, uneven hollow man EP um, about seven months before Wolverine blues came out. And, uh, you know, we talked a lot about that release when we did a, 
we did an Entombed EPs episode way back in 2013, about 10 years ago, Mark. Um, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. But beyond the title track, you know, and a couple weird pre-vocal version of Wolverine Blues and a couple covers and things like that, there were a couple of gems that sort of pointed, I think, uh, the way towards the future, you know, obviously alongside Hollow Man. Um, and one of them that I thought would be kind of an interesting song to throw on there is Put Off the Scent. And, uh, you know, filthy, fun, catchy, groovy. Uh, the breakdown at 225 is is very predictive of where Entomb is going to be heading. Um, you got LGN vocals again. I mean, mm-hmm. was that kind of a big deal for you guys? That was yeah. huge because we, I, I mean, I, I saw actually a Nicky Anderson interview where he says that, yeah, our previous guy was the best that there ever was. Mm. We're talking about LG. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I, I think he might, he's up there for sure. Like that, what he did uh, and, and have like the longevity of the career and how he, he kind of, I don't know, like he really, like Jeff Walker's always kind of been Jeff Walker. He's got mm-hmm. that certain thing. But there's certain guys that just like, holy shit, like you immediately know that's LG singing and yeah. doing that that full kind of full voice, loud thing. But then it became less gruff, but it was still had an edge to it, even on that last um, Entombed AD record, mm-hmm. um, like the yeah. Torment Remains track. He has like that, the the weariness of age on top of that as well. So it has even more of kind of a grit to it. Mm-hmm. So I think he's definitely... Um, I was thinking about that. I was writing notes. I was like, man, I could probably just go off on tangents about how, and it's not just because he's passed, but like how good he was as a vocalist. I don't think I ever really thought about it. I, th- I kind of took it for granted. Putting this episode together, it made me really, especially Wolverine Blues, like how he's the, to the secret component to this record. Because like, again, you know, there again, if it they was just straight death vocals. It wouldn't have worked. Yeah, they didn't intend to sell this to like a mass audience. That's one of the interesting mm-hmm. parts. I'll kind of read from with some stuff we have a little bit later. But, you know, the, the Columbia deal that comes through after they're kind of in the process of writing this, you know, I don't think they changed anything because of that deal. I think that's kind of maybe a mythology. You know, they were they were always going to make this record regardless, you know, and so. Yeah, it was basically done by the time all the ideas were already in place. Yeah. So, you know, you get LG in place and, and he's he's the right guy for this kind of sound and what they're they want it to do, you know, songwriting wise. So um he was so able yeah, to so. bring in like some melody with uh vocal lines to some degree with death metal singing. And there's kind of like some emotional oomph to to like the way he does some stuff, and we'll we'll talk about it when we get into some of the more specific songs, but there's just definitely like things, you know. I mean, even a song like that we're skipping, um, Blood Song, you know, like it's kind of a ridiculous song in terms of like the lyrics and stuff. It's kind of silly, but like he does some things really cool. Like I suck your blood. Like just like, he's doing like these really awesome shit with his voice and stuff. He's really yeah. theatrical with his voice. He's like a, you know, like vaudevillian performer for yeah. death metal with like he, or like King, more likely it's a, like, King Diamond. it's a King Diamond thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of King Diamond and I would never have thought that, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. LG King Diamond have almost nothing in common in terms of the sound, but like, the approach is is pretty uh pretty cool like he just seems like a showman and that's cool yeah and i think this this record has they're really adopting pop sensibilities pop rock sensibilities for um structures of songs yeah um just like how like every song has a build up a quiet slope or quiet loud part like all the like the because when i think of entombed as what really hooked me originally was 
that quiet loud pixies thing for left hand mm-hmm. path like wow yeah. this sounds fucking amazing and then it has this epic horror movie score part and then it goes back into this like epic part like you that that song you could put against all kinds of different like you know viking fight scenes shooting off shooting zombies like there's it's so evocative so visually evocative and that's every like this song has a lot more of those than i kind of remember almost yeah there's probably like out of all the tracks there might be like five that have that full like epic huge thing where it goes you know starts out it could start out sound like a rock and roll song and then by midpoint it has this kind of like this epic um like kind of like sad epic thing that happens like leader yeah, I mean, pack kind like of that. thing there's even yeah. that like even an eye master which we opened up with like it transitions out of like the sort of groove riff at like a minute 30 into like almost that like swedish tremola kind of like almost like what you'd hear like catatonia or something a little bit more melancholic it's just it's barely there but it's like yeah. still there you know well, i feel like eye master has some definitely some like reused um or unused clandestine riffs in it yeah yeah i would say that that's a good connective tissue you know so but as we kind of approach this um this is the only time you know there's not a lot of scholarship on this era in the daniel ekaroth uh swedish death metal book but he does devote like a like a page and a half or so to kind of like laying out death and roll and he says uh, one of the most notable mid-90s swedish death metal styles has been called death and roll though generally credited to entombed i honestly think a band called furball came up with the idea first Furball was started in 91 uh, in Vox Joe by a former Carnage member, Johan Liva Axelson. No relation to Johan Axelson of Deranged. Their 92 debut, Those Shredded Dreams, displayed a new take on death metal, combining the furious death sound with traditional rock riffs and structures. They developed the style further on their second album, The Autumn Years, in 1994, flattening the sound to make room for even more rock and roll elements. But Furball never gained much recognition or success for their innovative music. Instead, Entombed became more widely associated with this new style. What Entombed achieved on their third album, Wolverine Blues, was truly remarkable. In comparison to the pure death metal of their earlier recordings, Entombed now focused entirely on making catchy and groovy songs. Unlike Furball, they managed to do it without subtracting any of the death metal feeling. The sound is just perfect. Clean, big, and brutal all at once. Every song is a soul of its own, as evidenced by the fast pace of Eye Master, the backbeat mayhem of out of hand the groove of Wolverine blues and the heaviness of demon quote for me this album was actually the natural continuation of left hand path but i guess in an environment as filled with musical rules as the death metal scene every slight change is seen as a revolution to me it was still pure death metal nicky anderson quote at this point nicky had loosened his grip on entombed and allowed all of us to take some part in the decisions he had also given up his obsession of us being a pure death metal band with long black hair and the right image. Everything felt good, even though I was drunk most of the time. Ufe. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ekaroth says, together with Left Hand Path, this is Entomb's masterpiece. Entomb later intensified their rocking tendencies before the great to ride, shoot straight, and speak the truth in 97 uh, until their development came to a halt after Nicky Anderson's unexpected departure. The following album, same, uh, let's see, same difference in 98. Let's see. Uh, uh, Yeah. Uh, Had none of the quality of Entomb's earlier records, but they did recover with Uprising in 2000, especially The Great Morning Star in 2001. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. I like both those records. Um, And here's a quote from Jesper from Afflicted. He says, this might sound strange, but I actually think Entombed is the most underrated of all Swedish death metal bands. 
They deserve to get so much bigger in Europe, and especially in the U.S. They should have sold far more records. When they released Wolverine Blues, they should have become megastars. And then he says, Wolverine Blues even benefited from a short-lived agreement between Earache Records and Sony Columbia that briefly made Entombed a major label band alongside label mates Napalm, Death, and Carcass. But even with Entombed sharing an uh, office publicity uh an American publicity office with new kids on the block. It should have been obvious that it would never work. Death Metal, even in Tomb's novel Groove Down version, could not be marketed with mass-produced gloss. How did other Swedish death metal bands relate to the death and roll style? Surprisingly, few dared to follow in the path of the mighty Entomb. In the harsh black metal climate of the mid-90s, the most accepted form of death metal was, oddly enough, melodic stuff. So he kind of goes on from there. Um, but he says, I guess it was a bit like in 1990 again. Bands understood that they could never become as good as Entombed, so they went another direction. <laughs> That's well interesting said. to hear. Yeah. yeah. But it's, yeah, I think, you know, we'll get into the Columbia thing a little bit later because um, I have a couple pieces from Albert's Choosing Death where he he talks a little bit about it um, in the next. Kind of I still talk have the, uh, I've got a, a subway poster, a three by six foot poster of them in a graveyard that um is like one of my prized possessions that i'm I'm finally i was talking um to lisa about this and she's like or i was like man i i, I would really love to get this thing framed it's yeah. like why don't you like i was like i was talking to albert and he he told me how much his uh because he's got the carcass heartwork subway poster signed by everybody uh-huh. and and he paid to get it framed i don't remember what it was it, it seemed at the time it seemed like shit. i can't why could i ever pay that Absorber, much for it yeah yeah it's like it's really important to you. Why, why not uh, take care of it? So I think I'm just going to make one myself with like a, a sheet of plexi. Cause it's been a, yeah. like this eternal, you know, thing that has little peg holes in the corners of it for, you know, since 1993. <laughs> I mean, that's my uh, mutants uh, art Adams poster that has all the peg holes from all the times I hung at the wall from probably like 90, 91, you know? Yeah. Like I want to have that now as like, all those holes are like that that's part of the history of the whole thing it's like you know finding somebody's you know star wars guy that has these burn marks that they remember the stories from or something like it's you know stuff is uh but this yeah that record was where i i kind of agreed with his idea of like they should have been superstars but that was through my lens of being a fan of extreme metal for a couple years up at that point and nobody else had any idea what the fuck this was (laughs) i mean to give my background you know, we, the 93 is pretty formative for us. That's my freshman year in high school when this record came out. And I think it came out like in Europe in 93 and like, I think by America, like early January 94, actually, technically, which is still my freshman year. But like, we were really in like our phase of like kind of spreading our wings at this point. And I, I would say this is amongst the first, it probably is the first European like death metal CD we ever heard. Um, and you were listening to like, you know, Pantera at this point, right? Yeah, we had Pantera, but by 93, we had, uh, we had, um, Morbid Angel, we had Covenant, we had Tomb of Mutilated. Um, we understood like that there was this, yeah, we knew what scene, but this was like a different, it was Sweden and we hadn't really like, we were like, oh, okay, this is, this is not like England, you know, like, I mean, Mm -hmm. we we could get down British shit a little bit, but, uh, yeah, I remember. I can't remember which one of us ended up picking up. I think it was Jeff actually um, that, that got this, and uh, we. It was just. It was kind of a gateway. We could kind of play this for our friends that weren't into death metal, and they kind of were like digging it. And then you know, the Wolf- were you, did you guys see the 
like the video on yeah uh, we saw the video on headbangers for okay. sure and uh that, that was that, that pre cool. that made you want to go out and get the record i don't know if we saw it after or before okay. uh, it might have been something we found used at new moon or something i feel like, like it was on a lot yeah it was on quite a bit i mean they even hosted headbangers um one time um with ricky and i think i, I, I probably recorded it and but you said you thought you might have it or something like that yeah i think i have it on a vhs somewhere because okay. we would wait till you know 2 a.m to see the end of headbangers ball and just like for the if we just hope that they play like suffer the children or something yeah and if yeah. we got something new like you know when the morbid angel the shit from covenant started coming out we were like blown away like holy shit like this is amazing yep. we've never seen anything any music we love in the last couple of years on, on like this major you know format did you MTV. guys you guys were doing requiem obviously by this point like what was the impact of this record and, and the whole columbia thing like in the sort of like I don't know, just like in your guys's estimation, being kind of well, in, it felt, having if, your pulse on it all. Yeah, it felt like the the shit we really cared about was starting to have like some validity with the mainstream. Yeah. So Did it was you like feel betrayed at all, or like like other new people discovering it was like I don't think so because like we didn't we barely knew anybody else that was even into this. Yeah, and like yeah. we were so entrenched in it, we wouldn't expect anybody to be even close to, you know. Our, our like knowledge and depth of this like this was our whole fucking life <laughs> mm-hmm. it was like you know comics comic books toys and fucking death metal is yeah was my life at that point and uh yeah I, I remember feeling like it felt like okay we'd spent so much time doing this you know this magazine that probably at that point had less than a thousand copies out to anybody but from from coming from that small town and then doing this weird thing nobody thought had any legs at all like they don't even understand what the fuck we're doing. What is this stuff? Where does it come from? And then you get that little bit of like validation, like, oh, it's on Headbangers Ball, man. You can, you know, watch the watch watch go watch some Napalm and Entombed on in Morbid Angel and on cable television. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it is strange when something like that feels like intimately personal to you starts to get like discovered it, it's kind of validation and it's cool i don't know like uh i i never cared like as a gatekeeper or something like that i, I always kind of wanted these bands to like have more success you know yeah as long as they didn't like compromise their sound i suppose you know i think that's the as long as they're being true to themselves um yeah because i mean like metallica basically kind of did every wrong that we didn't want them to do like they yeah. sold out they cut their hair they did a Lou Reed album like they it was just like it was one thing after the other so like it sucks when something you care so much about and you feel so much ownership over completely goes 360 from what it was at sure. its heart but yep. at this point you know in our lives like everything we've loved like Star Wars and horror movies and any of the you know fringe stuff is now mainstream yeah that's true like i don't know what fringe is anymore it's it's shit that's way off our radar screens i can tell you that it's yeah. you know like some some weird like japanese like thing or korean thing you know what i mean it's it's something like probably out there that kids are like well, even just like like uh like youtube is kind of the, the next thing i can think of like youtube and Bandcamp, how they they kind of operate subcultures of all the stuff like you couldn't imagine how many you know, uh, we, we bought a 40 acre farm. So I'm like, I'm watching all kinds of stuff in the background of, you know, homesteading stuff and like how to take care of your property and 
how to do like all this physical labor stuff. It's a whole subculture where they make yeah. like some of these people make as much money as, or have more views than any like, like NBC news at night. Like these people have like, like, you know, 5 million subscribers or something. And they're mm-hmm. making all this, like, it's crazy. Like the internet has made, has made it possible where we can have almost like full, like what we have thought of journalism in the seventies and eighties on any random topic. Yeah. There's people that are like, Oh, here's the new news about GI Joe toys, or here's the new news about this next, you know, band that's coming out or Ryobi tools or whatever the fuck it might be. There's so much out there. It's fucking crazy. It's, so it, it's, it's been cool it, to teach the classes I teach now because like, I'm like, Oh, I wonder if there's like an analysis video for like uh, the remake of the blob from 1988. Uh, Cause I showed it in my class and we just sure watched shit, that. There again. Is. God, what a great movie. So good. And sure as shit there is. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, fuck. there's like, so like resources, like, you know, I mean, when I first started teaching, like I was like, man, I really, I really wish I had a good documentary on like the Roman empire. <laughs> <laughs> now there's like 60 of them <laughs> like, like i was like you know i mean that's you know and i'm gonna get it on vhs because there's not a dvd player in my classroom at that point you know like mm-hmm. i just i think of like what i have the capability to do now and it's like oh i'm just gonna show this like deep analysis on some fucking obscure thing for two minutes and then we move on to this clip and this clip and I, it's just it is incredible if you want to utilize these amazing resources they're definitely there for you you know so yeah, like i was on a huge like kubrick kick and i got an audiobook that was like 26 hours just talking about 2001. oh nice yeah we're, <laughs> we're gonna watch that soon so but um yeah to get back kind of into into you know wolverine blues and stuff uh, i think one thing you know we talked a little bit about lg but i think another really cool ingredient um and, and all the ingredients are there but like Nikki's tight on this record in a cool way. Like he is, he's not doing like the kind of atheist tech death thing that he was trying to kind of do with like clandestine, but he's like almost like doing a, I don't know. I wrote like Dale Crover, Melvin's kind of Dave Grohl on the, the Queens of Stone Age record where he's just beating the shit out of the kit, the whole record. And it's a, uh, it's different than left hand path or, or clandestine where he's, he's doing the more technical stuff. It's still very technical, but it's like, more like stooges like just bashing the kit and and you feel the weight of that throughout a lot of these songs and it helps really like lock the groove in with how hard he's playing and, well, i think uh, the yeah the big thing of this era that i think is really exciting about this era and then goes to be completely overused is that instead of like you know traditionally in death metal you're either you're keeping i don't know the ter- technical terms of any of this shit, but like you know you'd keep the rhythm with a hi-hat or a ride Mm-hmm. And they start taking instead of those kind of more, you know, they, they kind of like stay in their own sonic little area. Like, you know, the ride's kind of like a ringing and the other's kind of like a little, you know, a sizzle. And then when on this and then even more on to shoot on uh, to ride, he's doing everything's on the fucking a crash ride or a straight ride or a mm-hmm. straight, a straight crash or a crash ride. Cause everything's just, there's that wash of like cymbal noise over everything. And it's totally that Stooges kind of like, you know, 70s stripped down kind of punk aesthetic almost. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like the stuff that I hear a little bit that makes me love like Sad Wings of Destiny is like how the symbols work on that record. The Alan mm-hmm. Moore drummer guy, like it just, it washes in a weird way over like the rest of the music and makes it really singular, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, just like the Terrorizer World Downfall yeah. record, how the yeah. hi-hat sound on that. Yeah, it's exactly. like, holy shit, that's, that's amazing. Yep. And so I came across as we were about to kind of crack this record open, um, you know, Metal Maniacs. Uh, it's the same issue that we actually used for the the Venom episode, um, what the Venom reunion for Cast and Stone and stuff. But on the cover, remarkably, it's the cover says Entombed uh, from Sweden with Eight uh, from <laughs> Russian Love. And Does uh, Nikki have a CBS Sports hat on or no? Uh, what's on the cover? Um, no, he's wearing a Hate shirt. Um, someone is wearing uh, a Six Feet Under hat with an obsessed shirt I, they have short hair well, a lot of them have short hair Ufe? oh that might be uh yeah it might be Ufe. yep i think it's Ufe because jorgen's in the background um because this is when we get to to ride you know mm-hmm. we'll talk about jorgen a little bit more but um just wanted to share this it's it's with alex and uh chris maycock did the interview um and it's this little section here says most close listen, uh, followers of the death metal chronology would agree that like all great bands and great albums entombed and its first two albums went beyond being influential too many bands to name were almost directly copied uh copying what they heard on those albums alex agrees somewhat he says i guess but we copied other bands and tried to make our own sound we took a lot of influences from others when we started out our whole world was about tape trading with american demo bands autopsy morbid angel just demo tapes and they really blew ours away we tried to copy some of that and came up with what i guess was our own sound and then the whole death metal trend came around and it was a lot of bands just copying everything and not really doing such a good job that's when we started losing interest in the whole thing and tried to put uh, to go to something different. You have to put something new into it. But unlike Metallica, Entombed stripped to its barest elements uh, and managed to retain one of the most violent approaches around. They threw away the trimmings but kept the core. Quote, I still respect Metallica, responds Alex to my sentiments. They have to do new stuff. Their new album is probably not their best, but I still respect them. There are bands I'll probably always like, no matter what they do. It's like with Kiss or Slayer. Kiss hasn't done that many good albums in a while, but I still respect them. Whether it was an addition to or subtraction from the Entomb formula, between Clandestine and Wolverine Blues is highly arguable, but inarguable is that it was these two consecutive records that contrasted each other most starkly. Was it out of boredom that the band was no longer content to play the detuned blazing death metal that was at the time epitomized? Yeah, that's probably correct, he says. Uh, except we don't think about it that much. The reason we started playing the music we started playing in the first place was because we were bored with the late 80s heavy metal stuff. So then around 91, the whole death metal scene started getting really boring because we don't really have anything in common with those kind of bands. The kind of bands we were influenced by in 88, 89 were kind of garage punky death metal demos. We have always had more of a rock attitude than a metal attitude. It shows more now. Some of these band uh, metal bands take themselves so seriously and end up like Spinal Tap or something. So that's kind of what happened, except we didn't sit down and say uh, it, say it. It was a couple of years between Clandestine and Wolverine Blues. And over that period, we started writing different songs. The formula for the songs has always been the classic rock formula, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. But what happened was we just slowed it down a bit and tried to get more of a groove in it. I think Clandestine is probably our only metal album because that's where we put the million riffs into every song. I don't know what we were trying to prove. Maybe that we could play technical songs. And then those songs were so hard to reproduce in the live show, we had to make it simpler. It seems like a lot of people have their own favorite. So kind of kind of insight into what they were kind of thinking about when they put together Wolverine Blues, I suppose, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I think, I think it's a cool quote where he says, we write like we're a death metal band that writes rock songs. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's the that's the kiss. 
you know? Yeah. Yeah. Kiss are just a rock band, but you know, they put that one little thing on top of it with yeah. an image in the, I mean, entombed to, to a, well, not as much of a degree, but you know, they're writing rock songs, but with that thing on top, it's death metal. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so let's crack this open. Um, we're going to hear a, a, a series of songs here and let's, let's kind of unpack it. Cause this is a, this is a pretty good stretch of the record. Probably my favorite stretch of the record here. Um, you know, Rotten Soil, we're going to start with after we hear the Put Off the Scent song from Hollow Man. Um, it rips right off the back of Eye Master um, with that killer breakdown at like 115. You get those great samples from Joel Schumacher's Flatliners. You know, mm-hmm. wake up, little shit, you got company. Um, you know what? Bit- Some of these releases of this have that removed. Did they really? Okay. I guess and like, like and also the live versions were they, were they re-recorded. I was uh-huh. just listening to that a couple days ago. Um, that one where, um, that came out, uh, maybe like three years ago or whatever, but they did it and it's like live through it in its entirety. And there's without like the Vincent price stuff, like there's so many little bits that are, when they're taken out of there, like those, mm. when they started using samples, yeah. like I looked like those were almost anchors in the song for me. Yeah, no, I agree. So when they're missing, yeah. it's like, oh man, that's weird. Like in Something. clandestine, all the, you know, the Vincent price shit. And that was, yeah. I was yeah, just like. Man you know, death, eternal punishment, like all this kind of shit. It, it kind of like, you knew where you were in the song. Yeah. And when you take it out, it's like, man, that's, I didn't realize how like critical that stuff was. There's even like a version, I guess, of I master that I think has something from Hellraiser on it too, but it's not the version I have or ever like grew up with. I think, did you ever hear that version? Well, there's, um, I'm not sure if it's that, but the, on the EP, the hollow man EP, they have the Hellraiser song. That's just I know basically they have that. all samples. Yeah, no, this was something I, I read. I found it on a website, and they said that some versions of iMaster, it might be the full dynamic range, like reissues, have like Hellraiser sample, like somewhere in iMaster. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure. Let me look yeah, at if, my, you, if anybody knows about it, let it, let us know what the fuck they're kind of talking about, you know? Um, but yeah, like, you know, you get that sample before each chorus, and I love the, you know, propulsive, percussive ending. And that like LG grunt at the end, the whoa, perfectly yeah. fucking sets up Wolverine blues, you know what I Total mean? Fucking D beat thing going on. Like there's a lot of, a lot of like all their kind of all their, I think, um, inspirations are coming through. On well, this. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of like D beat punk in this as well. I think it's too, I, I, you know what this record kind of reminds me of a little bit. It has a, it has a rain and blood kind of feel a little in terms of its economy and how like the flow of like how it all just kind of it's goes. 35 minutes too. That's that's it. And yeah, like, to like me, I think like, the longest song is, is four thirty-four. Like yeah. it's a really great like this is how records should be. We don't need 78 minute Metallica records. Like if you're gonna do a new record, make it under 40 minutes. And that's like showing some yeah. kind of fun. I mean, I can handle like, you know, good, you know, even like 45 minutes is fine, you know, but, sure, like, but I think to do it like a classic record, that's a like half hour, a, like a visceral thing is great. Yes. Like this. Yeah. Yes. This is just economic. It, it, I mean, even without a hand thrown on, which is kind of, I guess, technically a bonus track, depending on what version you sort of have, but uh, you know, it's just, it just goes and, and, and like the way that rotten soil like sort of ends and bleeds immediately into Wolverine blues. It reminds me of like the stuff you'd get where like piece by piece goes like right into like necrophobic and like everything. You don't necessarily know which when the song started (laughs) just goes. I mean like Jesus saves and alters, uh, alters a sacrifice and like all, you know, 
um, post-mortem going right into raining blood. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of a lost art form. I kind of miss that. That sort of just like bleeding record, you know, let's just go, you know, just do it. You know, I think the recording on us too, like, like imagine how cool clandestine would have sound with feedback in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, it would have lost some of the atheist kind of quality they're going for, but it, it definitely, sure. would. but like, it, it's really interesting where they, I don't know, like that, that whole, I feel like all of Kurt Ballou's recordings are all based off of like Wolverine blues. That's a really interesting point. <laughs> like really how he, he has this really like kind of visceral way of recording and all the guitars are usually, you know, if it's going to be like a Strigoi record or, uh, you know, like, Converge record, there's this like say, think of Converge explode. Yeah. Those are very Wolverine blues inspired in a mm-hmm. weird way. Yeah. That's a really interesting. Well, they connection. did a, um, the last time I saw Converge, or maybe it was the time before, they did a Wolverine Blues cover. Okay. I didn't know oh. it was, it was uh, wasn't that the decibel thing just when LG just passed? They end? Oh, they might have after they finished playing all of uh, Jane Doe. Yeah, I think they ended with Wolverine Blues. Yeah. And speaking of Wolverine Blues, I mean, is it the greatest two minute death metal song of all time? I mean, there aren't a lot of two minute death metal songs. You know what I mean? Like, it's economic it's, it's like <laughs> very wow. economic i mean the intro the riff lg's clear fucking vocals the groovy guitar that enters like at the pre-chorus you know the james elroy inspired lyrics you know it's not about the wolverine characters i'm sure most people no. know it's, <laughs> a, it's a pulp, pulp fiction kind of but also it, go, it has mm-hmm. that like in two minutes they also go back to the kind of the well of the left hand path riff where mm. it's almost yeah. that the riff is almost like it's it's would been a, like a in the in the running for being that same um phantasm riff yeah but like yeah. adding one note or something it just it felt very kind of like throwback to that song almost and i mean the ending you know pound for pound i'm the most vicious of all and that da, 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 yeah. da, da. i mean it's like two minutes in and out just mm-hmm. fucking done like a like a ramon song or a punk song you know it's it's just yeah. like it does what it needs to do. It gets the fuck out, but it does everything it needs to do. And it's like the single and it's had a video. Like it was just a rare time. You didn't get two minute songs like in the early nineties, you know, that we're going to be well, on. They MTV. did that. Uh, didn't they just do, they do this. Uh, is it the, on, on Wolverine or on um, hollow man? Don't they do the version of it where it's the same music, but then they just have, it's just like quotes about he's like Wolverine talking about, it's like the Wikipedia yeah. thing for Wolverines or something. That, that version's eh, yeah i mean without the it's vocal. interesting like yeah. i was just like it was weird to even have that as an option i know like uh, we weren't uh, used to like this was almost like the the kind of pop, the pop music version of what you would put on a single to pad it out yeah like oh here's we never people. had that for <laughs> death metal at that point i mean nine inch nails did that shit after every record where they did a remix record because it's industrial mm-hmm. yeah, yeah you didn't the death metal very often you know so and then we go into a demon, um, you know, not unlike full of hell. It's like kind of just stupidly simple. <laughs> I mean, like, and I mean that with like total like love in my heart when I say like, it's kind of stupid. And it's like caveman. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking it's ACDC caveman riff. For yeah, obituary. Obituary is yeah. the same thing. You know, exactly. it's just like caveman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but it's all about the in demon for me, that fucking sick breakdown at like the two minute mark. And then you get like a fucking Jerry Cantrell, almost like Allison Chain solo in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, into an even dumber, I wrote an even dumber breakdown, the second breakdown that happens near the end of the song. Like it's just like, 
how economic and simple can we fucking get you know yeah um, i don't know one of the things i was going to ask well, those Luffy and alex actually that, that have that wrote that one credits for that yeah i mean uh, it makes sense i mean nikki almost i mean nikki could write simple shit but he, he his mind is like almost too advanced sometimes so you almost need like the drunk guitar players to like just throw this song together you know well, this this also like really set aside for me like i could really clearly hear okay that's the alex hellad guitar parts like he has this this very like rhythmic thing and ufe's always had this more like loud and kind of dirty blues thing okay and and alex is always i can on this record okay um and also like seeing who writes things smith thing you know i didn't know but from my understanding i I think ufe is the only one doing any kind of leads that resemble solos like alex would do a couple like little you know pinched things here and there but not not anything like some of the leads which so that's probably doing kind of the the jerry cantrell thing on d that would be my guess yeah okay and he also does backing vocals which are some of my favorite yeah screaming back vocals so yeah like him and um um mitch from napalm were kind of yeah. like you know kind yeah. of these unsung guys that really added a, a hell of a lot to the to the music extra layer yeah mm-hmm. um and then we get contempt to kind of end things and I, I just wrote i said the older i get the more i think i appreciate this song it's like maybe a song that got lost in the immediacy of some of the other songs when i was young and full of fucking spit and vinegar you know this like, was also a single for this record contempt was no shit yeah. okay yeah i have I it from that. it's a radio station thing okay yeah i never knew that but i, I mean that doomy fucking opening riff like to me, like this is where you hear the Zizma. It's got a little of that Finnish kind of psychedelic melancholy built into it, at least in the beginning and a couple other parts. But uh Yeah, and this is all Alex. Okay. Okay. And like this is like this at uh, the intro to me is very clandestine-esque. And then it yeah. breaks it breaks yep. into more of you know what they're doing on Wolverine Blues. But also I don't think we've brought up yet, but all the vocal lines are great. Dude, LJ on this record. In this song in particular, I wrote LG's pain notes. Like he really is articulating like pain in the song, yeah. you know, a cool way. Like it's evocative, you know. I don't know. I can't imagine everything is so planned out. It's probably like they, it's like, oh, this is what we thought. And then he gets into the booth and he kind of does what he does. But there's a, a whole lot of personality on this to a degree where I, I feel like he's, he was contributing more than what we initially. We thought he was yeah. just like hired gun vocalist because like, oh, he did that one record, then he went to Comic-Con, and then he, like, yeah. what the hell's going on? Yeah, he's a he's a pretty crucial part to to all of, like, what, you know, I mean, I love Clandestine, don't get me wrong, but, like, that record with LG, that'd be pretty That'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd be a neat thing to, you know, maybe that'd be one of the good things AI could do is... Uh... Yeah, I was the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I just re-recorded a Kanye, Jay-Z duet, but they did it with Tupac and Biggie, and it's remarkably interesting. It's almost uncomfortable, but it's like, it's weird. Like, okay, this is what AI is going to be able to do. Holy fuck. Well, that's what all the, you know, modern music, modern pop music is training the public for, is to accept that as music, because... how great would it be for the record companies if they don't have to pay artists anymore? Yeah. Just fucking throw the shit up. Yeah, let's just like make new Beatles songs because you can replicate all four of their voices and yeah. shit. It's like, all right. I mean, I guess it's gonna happen something like that inevitably, but uh, but it, yeah, it last... comes down to what people want, you know. Yeah, and I'm not gonna 
fall for this shit. Anytime I hear any of the voices, like you hear Joe Biden or Trump or something done in AI, it's like, it's, it's not even close. No, no. There's still like a, a, a disconnect there, you know, yeah. the, what do they call it? The uncanny Valley. It's still not like not quite there yet. Yeah. I, mean, I think we're ultimately going to always, I think we want, I don't, at least me personally. And I think people in large at larger, you don't want stuff that's so polished that you can't tell if it's human made. Like it's the imperfections that make things interesting for the most part. I think that's like been our mantra on this show for years, you know, is to appreciate working outside of your ability and appreciating those things that were like mistakes. You know, it's like, that's, that's the magic. You can't like decide you're going to make a top selling album or one that's going to, you know, stand the test of time. Like that's, you know, you can't just do that out of technical ability. Yeah. Like that's got, there's way more to it. So. And the last thing I'll say about contempt and we can get to the music is uh, Nikki does these really cool drum fills that like intertwine at the chorus. And um, yeah. And I love the little like melodic doomy kind of midsection, pretty fun. Mm-hmm. So like, like I said, I think, I don't know. I, my go-tos when I was a kid, I, we listen to this and all the fuck I say a kid when I was a teenager, we were always driving around, obviously hollow man. We listened to, I master just because it opened the whole record. We listened to Out of Hand a ton because it was, you know, swore a bunch. And, you know, Out of Hand is just a good song. What's that? Out of Hand is just a fucking amazingly written song. I mean, we'll get to that later, but like LG's vocals in that are like, yeah. Uh, But Contempt, I don't know. I liked it, but I just now in doing this show, I'm like, man, this might be. This might be my my low key maybe favorite song in this record now. Probably because I overplayed the other ones, you know. But uh, yeah, it's fun, fun indeed. So, all right, let's get into it. We got uh, put off the scent from the Hollow Man EP from '93. Then we got Rotten Soil, Wolverine Blues, Demon, and Contempt.
That was Contempt, and before that, Demon, Wolverine Blues, Rotten Soil, all from Wolverine Blues, and then we start it from the Hollow Man EP with Put Off the Scent. So kind of second half of the record is kind of what we're, we're about to sort of unpack, but I uh, wanted to offer a little bit more context for Wolverine Blues, where it sort of fits in the scheme and kind of talk a l- briefly about like the Columbia stuff a little and um, we turn to our old friend, um, you know, one of I, probably this book was one of the inspirations, I would say, for probably starting this podcast when Choosing Death came out because, you know, it was like, oh, shit, like there's scholarship for this stuff that we're into. You know what I mean? It was kind of like mind blowing. What year uh, did that book come out? Let's see, because I got my original edition. I'm looking at it right here. 2004. So, yeah. Okay. We started in 07. Oh, wait. Yeah. Uh, yeah oh, wait. So- oh, wait. Yep. Well, 0, so, 07, I was I started another podcast, yeah, you were doing uh, Arc podcast. Yeah, but it was um, yeah, that was like it was like the confluence of because death metal is you know twenty some years old at this point, or fifteen, twenty, yeah, fifteen, yeah. Like we were, it was just it was, we were just hitting the point where because I remember when Decibel Magazine came out, what two years later, oh six, is that when they started? I think so. Maybe 05. Well, 05, 06. But like yeah. that anybody did scholarly work about death metal was like, holy shit, this is, this is incredible. Yeah. But, uh, but Albert uh, wrote this obviously, uh, who's been a guest many times. And uh, this is a section where you kind of talk about the, it's, it's from the chapter called corporation Poland. Um, you know, was that a napalm reference? I think. Um, yes. And uh, they, they talk about uh, the Columbia deal. It says other acts like Napalm Death weren't as pleased with the prospect of major label affiliation. I couldn't believe it, says Barney Greenway. I was thinking, what is this guy doing? Digby signed us to Columbia. We had nothing to do with it. I remember one day he just said, oh, yeah, by the way, you're signed to Columbia Records in America. And that's about it, really. And I was like, what? No fucking way. I don't remember if I came out right with it, but I remember thinking, this is the end of the band. I was so disgusted. I just not, did not want to be on a major label. It went against what was my vision of the band, and the other guys in the band weren't happy either, but they sort of took it on the chin. Some bands, such as Bolt Thrower, who weren't selected for release through Columbia, welcomed the decision with a sense of relief. Quote, we thought the Earache Columbia collaboration was the kiss of death for Earache, and we were extremely happy we weren't part of it, says Bolt Thrower bassist Joe Bench. When major labels get involved in a scene, they usually end up killing it. Luckily, Bolt Thrower weren't dragged down with it. The Columbia marketing team knew these artists had already uh, had significant fan bases upon which to build. Slick videos and aggressive advertising campaigns would help. But to reach beyond the underground death metal discipline, uh, or disciple, excuse me, they would need to work more exotic angles. Entombed had already determined that, that Wolverine Blues would be the title of their next LP. So Josh Surabon contacted Marvel Comics, attempting to arrange a tie-in with the record and one of the Marvel's most popular characters, Wolverine. To their astonishment, Marvel agreed, not only allowing the label to use an image of Wolverine on the initial pressing of the record's cover, but also permitting a lavish, partially animated video to be filmed featuring Wolverine for the LP's title track. Not everyone, however, was overjoyed with the turn of events. It was like we were run over by a tank or something, recalls Entomb drummer Nicky Anderson. We had nothing to say about it. The actual song Wolverine Blues was taken from a James Elroy book about this killer that was obsessed with the animal, the Wolverine. And Sony was like, oh, the Wolverine, Marvel Comics. And none of us had personally ever read it. But they came up with this great marketing idea that they should include the comic in the video. We were like, is this really a good idea? For Carcass, impending heartwork record, the label commissioned prestigious artist H.R. Giger to provide a cast aluminum sculpture for the album's cover art. 
Similarly, Columbia hired high-profile perf- artist Antonio Serrano to direct a promotional video for the first single that would, uh, from what would become Godflesh's more rock-oriented selfless LP. Although the arresting clip for Crush My Soul cost over $75,000 to film, its <laughs> religious imagery was deemed too offensive by MTV and the video was never shown on the channel. As the time drew closer to enter the recording studio, the temptation to craft a more commercial record loomed heavily over some of the artists. While each would record their most accessible albums to that point, to be fair, all of Earache bands that released material through Columbia claimed to have felt no pressure from the label to manufacture a more sellable album. I want to say right now that we never told the bands to change their sounds at all, ever, Pearson also stresses. That's not Eric's way. Deep down, it was never actually said, well, we're on Columbia, so let's make a record that's going to break. But it was kind of inherent in the artists themselves, something to force them to do this or that. Obviously, there was a little bit of pressure, I think, from Columbia. Jim Welch might disagree slightly, but from what I remember, he would tell me, I've got to go to radio with something by Carcass. I've got to go to radio with something by Impune. <laughs> I think it just came uh, to the bands from within. After making so many albums on no budget, the Earache Indie budget, they were like, wow, we've got something real to work with. After Fudge Tunnel released their Earache Columbia debut, Creep Diets, a sludge punk metal amalgam that stylistically differed little from its predecessor in the summer of 93, Entomb was the first death metal band to step forth with a new LP. Although still heavier than anything even approaching mainstream, the aggressively marketed Wolverine Blues released in January of 94 delivered a crushing mid-tempo groove that was more akin to traditional rock and metal than brutal death, uh, death metal or grindcore. We didn't know it would be on Columbia when we wrote it, emphasizes Nikki Anderson. It was absolutely not written for them. Um, and then they kind of go on to talk about artwork from there. So I wanted to share that because I thought it was kind of appropriate for the context of, you know, what we're kind of talking, you know, it's almost like a, a blessing and a curse, you know, what, what, what's kind of going on with this Columbia deal. I don't know. Well, I feel like all the bands that kind of partook in that were also at a crux in there, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, uh, like Napalm was like, had done Utopia Banish. Now what, what do we do after this? Like, you know, they all, everybody kind of took interesting directions, but I yeah, think it was, weird. it was kind of baked into how quickly they were progressing too. Cause you know, if you go from, you know, reek to symphonies to necroticism, like those are all huge jumps. And then you go to heartwork. It's like, holy shit. Yeah. Like they yeah. were already on that and heartwork kind of set the, you know, this is now that's kind of the high watermark and everything else is kind of like a permutation of everything up to that point And then some of the new sensibilities, but like, I think they were kind of, all those bands are kind of at their peaks cathedral as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean that, Ethereal Mirror is, I mean, that's a, that's a gateway record for, for doom, you know, for a lot of mm-hmm. people it could be, you know, if you need it to be, I mean, I really think cathedral and entombed, I mean, you know, even carcass could have been the next Megadeth, you know, in some level, you know, like all those bands had, I mean, I think the band that probably, you know, napalm was never going <laughs> to cross over with fear emptiness. You know what I mean? That no. was never going to be that, that thing, but uh, they already kind of had a weird mainstream presence. Um, because of just like the novelty and John Peel and all that kind of stuff. Well, and so like in Morbid Angels, they're kind of the guys that they got there on their own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Without a, uh, you know, without a, a, a label wide deal kind of throwing yeah. all these bands in there. But I mean, um, they had Giant and Gunther Ford or whatever that guy was, you know, but that was a yeah. whole different kind of thing, you know. But that was uh, kind of the first mainstream death metal. Yeah, no, thing I agree. To, to really, to really happen. And that, 
I, I guess you could kind of see it like if you go from what they were doing on Bless the Sick to that, it's the same kind of transition from, you know, clandestine to Wolverine Blues. Yeah, no, super dry, technical kind of stuff to like, like strip it down to its base. Like Covenant's a very, by, you know, like back to the roots kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like just everything is stripped away except what really matters. Yeah. It's a lot of, lot of like air in the production and everything too. Pretty so economic, I, you know, it's it's yeah. an economical record. You know, there's not like all those intro outro kind of songs that blessed had and it's just kind of just goes and gets done. And know? if they would have had like, I think what really kind of, I don't know if it, it just kind of like a weird kind of echo of this is the, the Wolverine tie-in, I think really diminished this, like what people thought the sincerity of this record was. I was just going to ask. I think it kind of undermined that a lot. <laughs> Jeff and I didn't care that much, like because we didn't have any. There was no integrity with with Entombed. Sure, for it, sure, right? Yeah, like, it, it was a good marketing that. move for sure. I I guess as a comic fan, like, what were your thoughts? Like it? Well, because this is like around the time of like. Um, it's uh, X number one. Sam Keith, yeah. uh, you know, Max Marvel Comics presents where he was oh, doing that Wolverine okay. thing as well. So yeah. Wolverine had kind of had a little bit of, um, I guess the, the Frank Miller things like from 87 or 88, right? Claremont. Uh, that's even older. That's 84. 80, okay. Um, Jesus. So like, yeah. but there was always these little things where like, you know, uh, I remember picking up this one, the dude, who's the guy that did all the, um, Hellboy stuff. Uh, uh Mike Mignola. Yeah. Mignola. When he, he had like a, uh, a Wolverine, kind of just like little graphic novel short mm. that came out. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. Yeah, I haven't. It's the okay. one who's in the jungle, right? Yeah. But like yep. those would just like come out. So there'd be like all this Wolverine was basically the Marvel's Batman at that point. Yeah, he was huge. Yeah. Everybody yeah. was doing these different views on him. So he was kind I mean, of the like only successful X-Men thing. X-Men number one, which, you know, sold like 2 million copies. You know what I mean? Like it True. was, yeah, X-Men was like peak, you know, X-Men animated series might've come out by like 92, 93. You know what I mean? Yeah. This was like Marvel's kind of like, you know, second big push since the sixties, I think. Yeah. In a, in a widely commercial way. Later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Until they, they basically, yeah, the speculation boom, but um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I was always, I was always kind of curious, but I think you're right. It probably did undermine the, integrity of like what the record really was did it maybe get some new eyes on the band like people like us like well, so we didn't think that's, that's the rub record. right there yeah. like you know you've that's the game they were playing but ultimately it didn't really like because the version i've got never had wolverine on it you know mm, i always yeah, had same, the, same. the european version yeah um, I've got i wouldn't mind a version like a, a vinyl version of the wolverine version if it was it's probably like I kinda stupidly want, expensive probably i kind of want a cd i i want the cd with the wolverine <clears throat> on it just to have it you know i was like yeah i would like to have it as a collector at this yeah. point but it was just a really weird going from like you know dan seagrave covers to like you know i don't even know what artist did that it's not like a normal wolverine artist that i know of I mean, even like the cover of the version I have is interesting. It's like, uh, it's almost like a something out of like a mummy or something. It's just like a weird, like, I don't know what it, it is. It looks like a, almost like you, they took a picture of like a television or uh, something. I don't know what it is. But in, in, if you look, like I've got the vinyl version of it uh-huh. and the texture almost looks like puzzle pieces. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I have definitely. no idea what the fuck it's supposed to be. But I mean, it looks like some type of 
you know, mummified or petrified human being. Yeah. It's but also, I don't know like what that, um, you know, the source material, you know, if it's just about somebody losing their mind or exactly what all that stuff, you know, the like, James so, right thing. Yeah. If this like reflects some part of that, the, that, that book, I'm not sure. Yeah. The killer who identified with the Wolverine. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Jeff kind of was into like, I think this record kind of, and, and simultaneous, he was getting into like Miller's like Sin City. Jeff started mm-hmm. like reading like Mickey Spillaney and Elroy stuff. And that's you know, what he got kinda, me into watching old, old stuff as well as, um, as Sin City. Yeah. Going back yeah. and like actually like, you know, picking up like, or watching like the concrete jungle and shit like that, you know, the asphalt, asphalt jungle. Asphalt jungle. And, um, you know, some of the old Bogart stuff. Yeah. It's fear. It was weird because I didn't really get into noir until college. Uh, even though I kind of appreciate it in Red Sin City, I never. It's weird. It should have opened the gates for me there, but it was taking film classes that got me really into noir, and then I. That's what got me into it deep too. But yeah, like the Miller was just. Uh, I don't know, and like the stuff he was doing with Sinkavich at the time, like with the Daredevil stuff and Electra, it was just. Yeah, born. He was kind of like the cutting edge of, like anything he was doing, like you know, RoboCop two. When he was involved with that, it's yes. like, man, he's just like, he's there. He's, he's on like the cutting edge. And I just yeah, thought his stuff was like the coolest in the world along with, you know, death metal and like underground comic books were. Yeah. It all kind of fits nourished me at that point. Yeah. So I want to read this and then we can get into the, the kind of wrapping up Wolverine blues and starting to set up uh, the, the final Nikki record. This is just sort of that little intro piece that Chris Maycock wrote for the maniacs and kind of kind of sets the scene. I think we're for where we're at. It says one of the most popular extreme metal bands worldwide has once again, crawled out of its hole in Stockholm and unloaded what might be the best in tomb album yet to ride, shoot straight and speak the truth. The first two in tomb records, 1990s left hand path and 91s clandestine were regarded at the time of their release as the, uh, the state of death metal art. Although never claiming to have invented anything, the quintet have a level of class, confidence, and conviction with which scarcely anyone on these shores or elsewhere could compete. The intensity of these records would go unmatched for a long time. The rest of that chapter should be obvious. Death Metal exploded in Sweden, bringing to light bands like Dismember, Carnage, and Grave. But all the while, Entomb remained the standard. 1993 saw the release of the band's third album, Wolverine Blues, which found it taking a much more direct approach to brutality. Songs were shorter. Uh, less complex, slower, and more focused on rhythm, a change that in a bout of youthful haste, I at first found quite offensive. <laughs> but further examination revealed that it would be, have been impossible for Entomb to improve upon the limitations of the death metal doctrine. So wisely, it took its music down another left-hand path, making no compromises in violence and brutality. Wolverine Blues was one of several earache titles at the time co-sponsored uh, a bit precariously by Columbia Records. Some versions of the CD contain a Wolverine comic and the booklet, a gimmick I never quite understood. So he shares your truth. <laughs> the result of the stripped down songwriting and bizarre marketing led to the loss of some of the band's more conservative fans. But they these were replaced and then some with uh, and then some with the help of extensive touring and increased airplay. To fill the area between these tours and the present day, we must navigate through. Oh, that, I want to stop there. So, it, you know, I think a lot of people seem to have the same reaction that you had and Chris Maycock, where like at first you were kind of stunned by Wolverine Blues. You're like, "Ooh, is this a, is this a good thing?" You know what I mean? Like not just the Wolverine crossover, but just the simplicity of the songs. But yeah, I think I think after you digest it enough times, you're like, "Okay, there's kind of a genius in this too." You know. 
It, um, it makes nothing but sense. But yeah. you know, as a teenager, you're just you're not you're not quite ready for it yet. You could have probably stood to have one more record in between. I wonder if people. I guess we already answered this because we did talk about this, but I'm sure there were people like when Rain and Blood came out, they're like, "What the fuck? What happened to like the longer Hello Wait songs?" You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, and you know, so there's always going to be that that kind of happens, I guess. But uh, yeah, so the the last trio of tunes we're going to play before we kind of set up uh, some other stuff here is um, we're going to hear Full of Hell, um, silly. You know, heavy, groovy, catchy. Um, I said it's like a white zombie song played by Zizma. Yeah, it's dumb. Yeah, it's dumb. It's like a white zombie (laughs) song played by Zizma or something like that, you know? And that's Um, all Alex Hellid. That's music and lyrics. He's 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 got this economic like his he like strips it down to like its purest element, almost to like a fault, but it's still pretty cool, you know. Yeah, I think Um, him and um I think him and Anderson together have a really interesting they kind of play off each other in a really good way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, and I think Anderson's also, you know, Nikki's he's a good songwriter on his own. I think Alex is a better songwriter with somebody else. Probably. I think him and Ufe both are. Yeah. Um, I think they're more, they're more like almost like accent. They have like Alex has this really, they both have really interesting energy for guitar players, which is always good to have, you know, the difference between, you know, like the, um, like uh Kerry King and, and Henneman. Like, yeah, they have very they have similar aesthetics, but like definitely you can tell the difference between the two guys. But uh, like Alex is just this very kind of that rhythmic, kind of pounding groove oriented thing, and Ufe is like noise, dissonance. Um, it's almost like like KK and um, uh, oh shit, I can't. Oh, Glenn Tipton, yeah, Tipton, yeah, like that kind of dynamic, like between the two of them not that they were going solo for solo but like the the energy they bring is always kind of this pull and yeah uh, this back and forth kind of movement so speaking of ufe solo if he's doing most of the solos i i do it's one of my favorite parts of the song probably is the solo in full of hell i could be totally wrong they don't specify unless i don't have the all my music is packed up at the moment i don't know if they i looked in the book it's not there they don't i look i look to see if they did uh, i think ufe was always more the the lead player and alex was the you know the rhythm player yeah yeah indeed and then we get uh tell me mark who does examine the doctors um who watches the watchman exactly we get hollow man um one of the weirdest choruses yeah it's uh, like it's, I, I can't think of another singer that could have done anything with that but lg managed to make this weird like it's not a it's like a, a, a it's not like a hard forcible chorus and, and it's, it's like it does not fuck, too, it's catchy as fuck way. but it's like off kilter too it's really a it's weird not normal yeah no. i agree it's like a it's a weirdly recorded like it's a it's like the wrong band trying to make like a pop song or a hard, like a hard rock classic or you know it's it's yeah very it's like strange. pulling in like elvis costello into death metal or something it doesn't fucking make any sense but it works somehow and we haven't mentioned him at all really this episode but this is a song where i kind of started to notice uh listening especially in headphones like lars rosenberg's like his wah-wah bass like kind of buried underneath a lot of things in this song in particular and there's it's, a uh, lot of good bass sounds in this i love hearing yeah. like the the string noise like that's the stuff, the, the Kurt Blueisms, where you can hear yeah. what's making the noise on the instrument, not just the instrument itself. Like all those periphery things are really interesting. Yeah. 
little scratches and mistakes and things like that. Yeah. But yeah, that uh that whole section that starts at like 145 and the varied like LG screams that he starts to do there, the and then like he hits like another one. And then mm-hmm. that last 45 seconds of intensity in the song is fucking perfection, right? Like where it all like fucking locks in for that like end part. Yeah. I mean, well, there's a straight up like a uh, Mumra scream in Hollow Man. Yeah. It's yeah. the second scream. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like this, <laughs> this fucking over the top thing. <laughs> it's real good. Yeah. It's good stuff. And then we get, uh, you know, again, Out of Hand is a song we explored, uh, you know, on the EP episode that we did back 10 years ago or whatever. But it's, you know, it's, I, I thought it was worth including because whether it's, on your version or not, it's also the EP that kind of follows <laughs> Wolverine Blues, I guess. Um, yeah, I actually got the um, the twelve inch single at White Earp Records that has you know God of Thunder and on one side and Out of Hand on the other. Yeah, is it just those two songs, or was there a third? I feel like there was a third cover. No, it was a it was a twelve inch version, so I'm not sure if it differed from the CD at all. What had where did Black Breath cover show up on? That was on there too. You're right. Okay, so that I think it was the three songs. Okay, that would make yeah. sense. That's fucking yeah. cool that you bought that at Wyatt Earp, where fucking Repulsion came from. Yeah, yeah. I know. That's, that's a pretty a cool... cool uh, like, that was one of those things. Even when I was getting rid of some of my records, I'd never got rid of that thing. Yeah. Because no, I was just like, the first, the day, it, like, we, me and Chris used to go over there every, you know, a couple of weeks. Yeah. And whatever was up front, like, there's always something you would just immediately grab, and then you start looking around to see what mm-hmm. else came in. But there's always one of those, like, oh, shit, I have to have this. Yeah, yeah. I think without a hand, for me, the thing I wrote down is I said, this is one of my favorite LG performances. I said, clarity, intensity, emotion. It's like mm-hmm. he he's do- dosing it out. It's all there. It's like you can understand what he's saying, but like you can feel like the emotion, but it's also like fucking like rages. And that's hard to pull off as a death metal vocalist. Oh, for yeah. sure. Also, this is funny that Lars Rosenberg has lead writing credits on the song. Of out of hand, okay, yeah. huh? <laughs> and it, you know, I like it the, goes it's him because it's always like descending, you know. Yeah. So yeah, Lars, Alex, Ufe, Nikki. So Nikki might have had like some, you know, mixing elements around or something. But if I hmm. understand that right, Lars has top top billing on it, and this Maybe is his last record. Element, yeah. I mean, he's, yeah. He's I think he was it. always an interesting bass player, but um, I don't. I don't know if it was the limitations of production at the time or if it was egos involved, but I love that you can hear like the string noise and you can hear the bass in death metal mm-hmm. at this point. Like, I feel like that, like when Marduk started doing like undistorted bass, it sounds like it just adds this like fullness. That's so, so lacking in death metal, but just to have that extra low bottom end, because we yeah. already usually have that kind of, you know, detune stuff, but to hear, you know, what the bass can bring to, especially if it has like a three piece, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. That's it's, it's, it, I notice a lot more, I think head, I haven't headphoned this record in a long time. And when I was doing notes, I was really, I haven't since the nineties. <laughs> yeah. I got this cool pair of like sound cancel, like uh Sony ones and it's, you know, they're, they're fun. So, and then we kind of go, you know, that we kind of wrap up Wolverine blues. And I think like a, <laughs> kind of an odd transition, but I think it, it almost makes sense is um, helicopters. And I don't want to go too deep into helicopters because it's not what the show's about, but I think it, we'd be remiss 
if we didn't mention like what Nikki was doing with helicopters and how that, you know, it's coming off of Wolverine Blues, I guess, but it also is going to influence the last record that we're going to talk about. I think, I think oh, what tremendously, I mean, I yeah. think without, you know, super shitty came out in, in 94, right? 96 but it was like 96. i think he was working on it for like a couple of years i think it was like a side project that finally it got released in 96 so i'm sure i think he was well that makes sense because yeah because that was kind of i think kind of more of his focus yeah and then entombed was kind of like yeah what else can we do with this but you know helicopters is a brand new thing at that point yeah and you get uh i mean if you don't know super shitty the max it's it's worth it's heavy it's the heaviest record that they wrote um this and i think high visibility mark and i were just kind of talking before we recorded those are kind of like two essential masterpieces and, yeah i'm uh, not sure who the who produced the first one if it's Scogsburg or not uh i've got it right in front of me let me look if okay. it says because um, i know with to ride was still Scogsburg, but uh for yep, sp was engineering okay yep yeah so like he he was on to something with capturing that kind of unhinged sound i think like a little too yeah he i think he gets like engineering credits or assists credits or something you know on these but i feel like wolverine blues led to super shitty sounding as good as it did yeah you know capturing that kind of just you know live drums feedback just like fucking high energy rock and roll that you know sonic's rendezvous would be doing like all the way yeah um got to get some action now you know it's uh uh, the the spine says sonic as fuck and i think that's (laughs) that's pretty appropriate came out in the white jazz uh sub label of house of kicks um Mm -hmm. psycho records so you know kind of interesting i think same Uh, is that where like backyard babies and some of those bands are coming out of as well yeah yep because uh dragon it came from backyard babies right Mm -hmm. yeah guitar yeah he was only on the first two records and then he left after that recently come back right i think yeah the latest one he came back in the 2022 record i think but i think in a way like nikki anderson's kind of pointing towards where his songwriting's heading obviously as you know mark just mentioned you know mc5 stooges birdman radio birdman from australia sonic's rendezvous band another detroit you know well he even does like you know the the solution with scott morgan just like yeah you know kind of like uh soul thing yeah that's fucking awesome i love that record (laughs) well i mean scott morgan was in sonic's rendezvous so that would make sense sure sure Um, but it's funny that he's doing almost like a uh he's almost doing like a dave grohl move yeah where he wants to work with like a bunch of his heroes and shit you mean well and you know being a drummer and then becoming a front man yeah that's true guitarist yeah 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 but i well i mean i guess nikki sang on clandestine even though he did it clandestinely um Yeah, sorry. That's no, no Johnny Dordevic in there. Yeah, no Johnny. Poor Johnny. But um, yeah. Then I mean, you get if you don't know this song coming up. I mean, it kicks off with a fucking iconic Texas Chainsaw Massacre two sample. Uh, that just always wild punks up, raising hell. Brought brought a brought a smile to my face. I mean, I just wrote this song makes me feel good to be alive every time I hear it. Um, you know, there comes a time where a man's got to decide what to do, Mark. And, uh, I mean, it sounds almost like big Lebowski <laughs> lyrics. Yeah, it, it does. <laughs> uh, or it sounds like, it, like the, the Kenny, Kenny Rogers, um, just checked in kind of lyrics, yeah, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But, uh, I mean the overdriven vocals and guitar, everything's in the red, you know, Scottsburg really does a nice job in getting that fucking Sonic's rendezvous MC five, like just you know fun house you know almost more of that than they could ever do on those original albums 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, almost flying off the rails uh, quite yeah. a bit. Um, I love Boba Fett's fucking piano that he's doing in this too. And mm-hmm. then the fucking Wayne Kramer fucking steam engine like solo. Where it's just like fucking ripping your head off. It's it's Brother good. Wayne Kramer, man. Brother Wayne, baby. You know, when we were, uh, I'll still keep it a secret where we're moving to, but it's three hours north. And where mm-hmm. we had to drop off the um, the uh, U-Haul uh-huh. was was at this army surplus place that remind me very much of the army surplus place we grew up with in Mount Pleasant. Oh, yeah, where you could buy ninja stars and knives and shit. And as we're walking down to go to, into the front door, they have little heads inside the windows of Brother Wayne Kramer and um, and Tyner. Oh shit! That's and I was like, cool. what? And and this is like a pretty rural, you know town in michigan i was like that's a pretty fucking cool thing to to see I was, I was old i was really hoping to go in and like say something to the guy about it but they had three open signs on and the door was locked oh shit i was like mm. i want to know what all this fucking mc5 shit's about so that's yeah. that's cool yeah. more to investigate that's and cool. where's the other guys yeah huh <laughs> maybe they don't like their politics I don't know. who knows who knows but uh but yeah so we're gonna we got full of hell Hollow Man, out of hand, all from Wolverine Blues. Then we got from Helicopter Super Shitty and Max. We got got to get some action now. And we're gonna end with two songs uh, from To Ride, Shoot Straight, and Speak the Truth. But we'll we'll talk about those when we kind of come back. But that will be our introduction, of the final little record that we're gonna kind of close out here uh, on our death and roll. So enjoy.
These are other kids. This is just an accident. Just a couple of wild punks out raising hell.
just heard Damn Deal Done and Parasite, uh, both of which were from the To Ride, Shoot Straight, and Speak the Truth record from 1997. Then we had Helicopters, Gotta Get Some Action Now, Out of Hand, Hollow Man, and Full of Hell from Wolverine Blues. Well, it is uh, DCIXVI, which is 666. Is that what that is? To Ride, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I knew I knew it had some meaning. I just my my Roman numerals are bad uh, at a certain point. It's well, I did not know that. I you know I, I did some research, and I I assumed that's probably what it was, just because you know LG was that's basically he wore exclusively merchandise that had six 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 on it or Satan. There you go. There you go. Um, and also, that's his only accredited. Thing oh yeah, he did with entombed is what we'll hear is one of the closing this, this songs, but... closing number. Yeah, parasite, not just a, a ode to kiss, probably a little bit. Um, spelled but also, differently. Yeah, spelled a little bit differently. But I found this in Maniacs. They talk about that song a little bit. That's kind of cool. I share. It says a uh, personal favorite of myself and several other listeners from To Ride. This is from the Chris Maycock thing is parasite, a short, potent piece of heavy rock and roll that demonstrates the band's songwriting tact. I expressed this sentiment to Alex, albeit in inarticulate terms of Parasite is fucking awesome. He says, cool. He responds, that was one of the last songs we wrote for the album. It's one of, yeah, flip pages, it's one of my favorites as well. We'd like to do a really rock and roll star video for it. We got that sample of the audience from a cheap trick <laughs> album, actually, with all the okay. Japanese girls screaming and stuff. So That's awesome. Yeah, I thought that was that was pretty neat. But uh, Well, and also that, like, that when you're hearing that on the record and then you see um on the inside they did this like photoshopped thing of like they're getting into their own jet that has entombed on the side oh i remember that yeah like that they had a real fucking sense of humor about what where they were at and i, I think a bit of it like in retrospect is now just like a little bit of a fuck you to everybody too like oh you guys sold out like yeah. oh yeah check this out yeah because this one you know we're gonna get into ride but it comes out not on uh Earache, not on Columbia. And so they're a, it's on their own label. They're in a kind of a new place. And actually, I'm going to share a little description of, of that from the, the last little thing I'm going to read for Maniacs and stuff. But um, yeah, then we sort of, I mean, Parasite's just fun. I just said it's like Nikki's little drum beats have this kind of like punk pop, almost like cheap trick, you know, kind of energy snap to them. You know, it's just like a. Well, toward the end, too, there's that, that little like fucking rockabilly beat. Yeah, they just on the drums. Sounds like a rockabilly Yeah, like something would have come out of you know, you know, on an Elvis record or something. Yeah, you know Jerry Lee or fucking yeah, any of that stuff. Nash or something like that. Yeah, it's 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 pretty funny. I think I I think they actually mentioned that it sounds like a fucking rockabilly song somewhere later. Yeah, they actually say that. Um, it's uh Alex later in the interview. He goes, "A good song's a good song." He says, "Parasite's like a rockabilly song." So good. Oh, there good you go. on you, Mark. There you go. That's that's all I could think of with that drum beat. I was just like, "Okay, it sounds like '50s rock and roll, but not." So that's basically rockabilly. Yeah. <laughs> well, the the interesting part, you know, you mentioned earlier how like a lot of like people with Wolverine Blues kind of like would say that it was inspired by like stoner rock and stuff like that but like damn deal done now now you could convince me a little bit because there's definitely like kind of like down coc you know like those kind of sabbathy kind of riffs kind of definitely ripped into into this song a bit you know yeah it's uh, so the riff is so simplified like yeah like it's just dun, 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 like this kind of descending 
riff and the the vocal the vocal line completely matches it as well it's kind of almost like acdc in it's like simplicity it kind of reminds me of the self-titled trouble it, it yeah it, i could see yeah like yeah. a doom rock kind of thing you know like yeah. what the trouble sort of that groove that especially the 205 mark of damn deal done it kind of gets it finds that a little bit you know yeah but, um this also has one of those uh 18 van jump moments in it for me no in the song <laughs> yeah a little bit yeah i can see that and a sure. great like breakdown i think the breakdown and the the break in the song is more interesting than the main riff yeah i mean the rain riffs just kind of recycled like sab riff you know i mean it's nothing yeah, like it's just so right simplified um i do dig you know i mean it, this is nikki's last record you know lars left uh to like basically be with theory on full-time and stuff and you know bring in jorgen sandstrom he had just uh, left grave so he kind of adds a more dynamic i think uh, as a bass player overall but what are you know i don't know I, I, I hear my thoughts and I, I'm kind of curious where you're at because this is a weird time for you and I, because we are not really interacting in 97 that much. Like we met in 97, but you were off at relapse and then you and Chris kind of had a falling out. So oh yeah, I just, I just wrote, we weren't really hanging out when this came out in 97. What was your reaction after nearly a four year gap in a vastly different metal landscape? You know, 93, 97, it's like fucking a lot's happened. Black metal, melodic. I, this I was, I was up for this okay i was I just, completely I, like and like this is like when you know the new wave of hardcore shit is starting to mm, kind of be sprinkled in here and there as well yeah so um i remember being into this because like fuck what else was i was really into all the revival stuff that was happening in 97 like uh you know okay. heavy metal revival kind of crap like uh oh. fucking hammerfall and yeah that was uh, kind of starting to happen all that kind of shit you know power metal german power metal stuff and then just more like rock records were kind of hitting more and this was at just that right time too where like you know for bonus tracks on this they do uh kick out the jams the mc5 song and yep. then 21st century schizoid man which is yeah. and then bursting out venom song venom. yeah like and then they did under the sun the sabbath cover yeah like it, it was like hitting all the stuff that i was already had like a little bit of an interest in already like at the same time, just like how Catatonia, when we were kind of that same similar journey where it was all this like, you know, fucking slow core and will yeah, they're and doing super they're doing depressive covers and indie stuff was covers and stuff. Yeah. 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 It was just like happened at the same time. So I was I was happy with the, the direction at that point because I don't think I had any illusion that they were going to go back and try to do like left hand path or anything again. Like yeah. they, they they were beyond ever doing that. You know, Paradise Loss is at a similar place at this time so i wasn't it the whole concept wasn't unheard of you know it's like well, i'm following I mean, them on their ride i'm following these guys on their ride 97 i mean i just thought it was it was a weird album but very cool i remember mowing lawns a lot to this record mm -hmm. um it's weird it's not it's obviously not as listenable or catchy it's as wolverine blues it's a lot messier there's more ideas kind of happening um i think it's much more um the full band which makes it a little messier. There's not like, I don't think there's a guiding voice per se outside of the production. Cause you know, you've got songs that don't sound any, like they don't really even fit on the record kind of. It's kind <laughs> of got a Beatles like white album quality to it where it's like, yeah. let's let everyone have their ideas and let it all be sorted out later. You know what I mean? That's like that's kind of what, like the sequencing is, is okay. I think several of the songs could be removed. 
Yeah. Um, I do like the the LG song that's basically just a you know kind of a piano theme. Um, mm-hmm. It breaks up the record almost halfway through and gives you like, like a little bit of a breathing room too. I feel like the opening yeah. salvo kind of has some momentum to it. And then it's sort of like, it just, I don't know. It, it's a, well, it, it starts with, it just, starts with uh, Nikki Anderson and Alex Hellad written tracks. Yeah. And then two Anderson, two just Nikki Anderson written tracks. And then goes to Ufe, Alex, and then Anderson again. But yeah. it ends like, I think wreckage, the, what it ends with, it ends as strong as it, as it starts. I agree. Yeah, it's bookended by two of the stronger tunes. And those are both Nikki Anderson songs. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, this is Nikki's last ride with the band in a mm-hmm. weird way, you know. Um, yeah, I'll just share this. This is um, from uh, Chris Maycock. It's the last little part I'm going to read. He says, um, one such problem that stood in the way of recording and releasing to ride was the band's overall dissatisfaction with their longtime label earache. The whole thing started and took so long because we wanted to leave Earache, begins Alex. We didn't want the album to come out on Earache. It was just everything from things to do with artwork, promotion, money, everything. It was a long line of little problems that all added up to the point where we felt that we didn't want to give this album to them, no matter what. We told them that, and it basically took them a year to accept. The guy from East West Records was interested in us, and we first went with them and they helped get uh, helped get us out of the earache deal. We recorded the album for them, but a lot of the employees left East West, and we felt there wasn't anybody there who could take care of it. So we bought the album back from them, and that's where Music for Nations came into the picture. They were really into it and really supportive, and that's what we needed. That's the short story. The other one goes on for about two years, and it's boring, he says with a chuckle. <laughs> he says, well, this, was, been- this was heavily uh, you know, PR'd as well. Yeah, I kind of remember, like, I was starting to get promos around this time. I think I may have even been working at the record store at this point. I think I'd just gotten hired. And so, you know, it was kind of in the, the ether. But Yeah, this um, seemed to have, like, pretty good, like, underground stuff seemed like he was kind of getting more U.S. distribution as well. Um, there was, what the hell was the other place that did, um, oh, Jesus, they did, like, Solitude Eternus and. Oh, Pavement? Pavement. Yeah. Like I think this might have been kind of the height of them as well. Yeah. But they no, but there was even like the you know, the Paradise Lost um one second record had yep. like USPR that was like super aggressive for underground stuff. I mean so, I got like a thin line promo of that too, for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got wow. I got five singles from them. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I've still well, I, it's packed now, but the you know, I've got like the the press photo and um, I've got a ton of shit from that stuff hmm. from that era. Like they were just, no matter what it was, it was PR was just really hot for like underground metal adjacent and metal stuff. Yeah. Well, um, Alex goes on just to finish this little thought. He says, but it's been worth all the hassle as the saga arrives finally at the completion of to ride, shoot straight and speak the truth. We're really happy with it. It took us a long time to finally be in a, pos- be in a position to record it. The band spent various times between April and September of 96 in the studio that uh, studio that its early records made famous, Sunlight Studios, and the record came out under a very curious title, 666. <laughs> you figure it out. But again, they don't say 666, but Mark solved that mystery. Well, the internet um, did, but... Yeah. He <laughs> says, uh, Alex says, it's actually, it actually is that. It's both. 
I actually got the title from a small ad in Guns and Ammo for the book some American guy wrote. <laughs> we were in America on tour, and just for inspiration, we find really stupid stuff in there, stupid ads for stupid stuff. So I found that nice title that I liked. I tried to get a hold of the book, but I haven't yet. Given the growing diversity of the band's catalog and giving my desire to discuss the new album from a perhaps unconventional angle, I wonder if Alex considers particular entombed albums necessarily better or merely different. I really like Wolverine Blues, responds the guitarist, but I think this one is even better. We always try to take a little step forward and do something even better than the old stuff. Otherwise, why would we record the songs? I like all the old albums as well. They all reflect where we were at the time, but that's the reason we all they all sound dif- a bit different. We're really proud of this album, but at the same time, hopefully we've sorted out all the problems that slowed us down before, and we can try and record the next one a bit sooner than in three or, uh, three years. But we're really happy with this one. I think it's one of the most varied albums. It's a little more diverse. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. I mean, I like an album like Rain and Blood that's really straightforward. It's over 28 minutes, and you want to listen to it from the beginning again. But then I'm also into albums that are diverse and have a lot of different stuff on there. We're not into filling an album with as many songs as we can fit on a CD. We want to keep it around 40 minutes, not too long, not too short, so that every time you listen to it, hopefully you find something new. My favorite albums are the kind that it takes a while to get into, but the more you listen to it, the more you like it. This is, yeah, 39.45, so they got right up to that edge. (laughs) Snuck right in. And I think that fits with your philosophy, too, of kind of what we were talking about before, you know. Um, yeah, I think, but most it takes. I think a, an extraordinary band to pull off longer records. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> like I think, like Rush, Rush could always pull off a long record. Opeth did it. Opeth can do it. You know, um, trying to think who else I I like long records from. Like yeah. like ponderous stuff. Like certain like if you've got a weird thing you're trying to say, like an Emperor record, you could. I mean, yeah, I think the last couple were were definitely over fifty minutes, weren't they? Yeah, I would say. Yeah, probably. But like bands like that, Enslaved could can yeah. can totally do that. Yeah. Um, but now in like their modern era, I like that they can also do just like a song that sounds like it would have come off of Hammerheart. Yeah, as yeah. like you know, right out the gate, like there's a good good mix of all that stuff. But there's, I don't think there's a ton of bands that can do long albums well. It's just like more of that. Yeah. And that, this was kind of a at the time, I think this is like when um, when Dickinson was doing a lot of his solo stuff. Yeah, Alfred right. Resurrection was coming out. Chemical Wedding, yep. And it was like, okay, and Chemical Wedding is not, you know, I think they use all the time there pretty well. Mm-hmm. But like everybody was doing 78-minute records because that's how much you could get on it. And it was yeah. like sales were going down at that point. And a lot of these like legacy labels, you know, that like uh, like Castle and stuff that were putting out these old bands that, you know, I don't know how many people really cared about their new stuff. They would go see them as a, a live act or something, but everybody Mm -hmm. was doing stuff that was all the stuff on SPV was like 78 minutes. Everything was that way. It's weird. Yeah. (laughs) You kind of remember that era, you know, and it's, you know, like how much are you pulling all those records out and listening to start to finish? You know, I'm just listening to a couple of cuts here or there from a lot of that stuff of that era. Yeah. And there's, there's bands like that, that you, you're always a fan of, but like when you think of the band, like when you think of UFO, you don't probably go to any of their two thousands material. No, no, not no. even really most of their <laughs> stuff. You know, I have a box set of UFO and I don't, I don't pull the, like the post strangers uh, in the night stuff out very often. Yeah. Know? It's all the early stuff that really kind of hit. So it's like, I don't know. There's, there's a certain amount of like, like bands that actually use the format to their advantage, but a lot of it is just 
I think it's more record label stuff like, oh, you got anything else? You want to throw a couple more songs on here? Like that was just a, I remember that being kind of a, a big thing in early 2000s, late 90s. Do you think that this record has aged well in terms of like, do you think it's found its audience finally? Like Entomb fans like appreciate to ride or do you think it's still sort of like a the weird anomaly record of that Nikki era? Um, I don't know. I never really got a sense of like. I, you know, I haven't either. It's, it's, I hear more reverence for Uprising than I do for this record. Yeah. I think that maybe these two records are kind of weird. It's just not, it's not like they're, they're not, but I think the highs were so high on the first two records and this became so different. Like, I just, I don't know. It just doesn't have the same pull as those first couple records, but it's not because it's not good. No. It's also just such a, what a what a fallow kind of weird place for death metal too i guess quote unquote death metal from 93 to 97 it's well, just we like, thought it was dead at this point yeah you know 96 when when was uh the bride record the the butcher the the 34 percent complete uh, 98 so like 97 98 is like right in that so that's <laughs> like you know that's the the one bride record that sound it sounds a lot like most of the bride records, but it has such a different patina on it mm-hmm. that you're just like, wow, this is complete. Like everybody was kind of doing, they thought this genre was, I think was done and played out. What can we do to keep this going? Mm-hmm. And I like the Entomb stuff just seems like a different band to me. Yeah, I agree. I think everything after, I think Wolverine blues might be the last semblance of it. This does not sound anything like the band I knew in tomb sounded like there's this sounds barely like anything the left there. Kind of sounds like the guy that made the helicopters record, encouraging the other guys to like explore <laughs> the That's shit that it, they were into, you know, yeah, like, yeah. And I think, I think Ufe and, uh, and Alex were both doing, you know, they had more diverse tastes. I think that LG was kind of the ride or die guy. Yep. Um, you know, he was just like, you know, old school Raven fan, like all this, like old heavy metal stuff too. You know, and he was in fucking morbid and like he's he's been around the block a couple times, but even he's stretching kind of the limits of what we think of death metal vocals yeah. at this point. I mean, you get the the title track that we're gonna kind of start with, and like LG's vocals are kind of like bouncy and f- like kind of uh they, they sort of work. Like he's almost like creating like a weird rhythmic kind of pattern that that is beyond what he's done before you know i mean he did the mm-hmm. catchy shit on the previous record but this is like i don't know if it's even death metal he's just sort of like i think singing. he's yeah he's pulling in it's like a gruffer voice but it's like it's pop sensibilities on all these songs yeah um, i mean they, they and not in a, not a negative way like a it's like it's it's really hard to write short punchy albums that and songs that connect with people Mm-hmm. like that's what people strive for and there's very few bands that can do it well <laughs> let alone like death metal bands that can kind of pull that type of thing out and you know it's uh yeah. it's i think i think and nicky anderson's always had he's always he's like one of those you know to a lesser extent but he's like a bowie where he's all he does is music yeah he probably doesn't know how to change a light bulb in his house but he has like figured out how to like just do music for a living and that's a pretty 
that's a crazy thing. Like that's all you do. I mean, when all he, these different genres, all these different instruments, like, you know, he did the, all the solos on the first dismember record. Like he's a really fucking prolific dude. I mean, he started nihilist when he was what, like 13, you know? I yeah. Mean, he was yeah, right around there. 13, 14, you know? Yeah. So like, this has just been his whole adult life. You know, he's never had a job. Yeah. That's crazy. That, that I understand. Yeah. I believe he's just done music his whole life. And like, why wow. wouldn't you want to do that? Even like, uh, like, uh, like Greg and, and Nick from Paradise Lost, like they're the guys that have all the writing credits as well. So they have that additional income. They've yeah. never had jobs since they started the band, wow. which is crazy for a band. When you listen to what they sound like now yeah, for the music and stuff. Yeah. And like, they were smart you know, during the draconian era when they were like, you know, compared as the next Metallica, but like how crazy is it? That's, that's like, if, if me and Chris were still doing a fucking the same thing we started when we were in our teenage years. Exactly. Yeah. If you were like, living that's off crazy. Requiem magazine, like, you know, yeah. Well. Like it took me like, you know, a couple like jobs having to work in the real world before I could even have enough, you know, to even pay my rent to, to have a couple like art jobs. Like yeah. that took a long fucking time. Like I can't imagine doing this stuff since you're a teenager. Like you have a totally different perspective on yeah. on everything. Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting. Well, well said for sure. So let's get into this opening of the record. I suppose you know, like I mentioned on to ride, you get LG kind of doing you know some of his catchiest kind of pop vocals, but yeah, really great groove riff. And then there's this counter lead that's sort of working with it that like, I, I really dig. Um, Nikki's kind of shuffle drum pattern is, mm-hmm. is very helicopter rock and roll kind of thing. I mean, the whole thing feels like classic rock, you know, and you get, there's fun- no double bass. No, there's no. no death metal drumming in this at all. There is a blast beat in the next song and it's very brief for like, five seconds at the it feels like it feels punky to me oh yeah it's just sort of bursting in there you know yeah so it's kind of a cool little thing and you know so you get to ride bleeding right into this kind of like venom motorhead chug um you know like like this with the devil lots of kiss overtones on this Mm -hmm. song you know it's like sped up it sounds like a helicopter song it's got like the squealing wheels and like broken glass and all these (laughs) like you know little bits that are thrown in there and rock cliches uh, you know yeah yeah and then the very end of it's uh you know it's got some great like Ufe's doing uh backing vocals mm-hmm. you know doing the the chorus again as it ends but yeah great um, i mean it's it's a solid it's another you know nicky anderson written song and it feels the songs he does like alex's stuff is even more i think concise and simple but nicky's stuff is all classic yeah. It feels like like he's really kind of pulling pulling in all these different types of bands, like all the pop, all the bands that have ever written good songs is what he's pulling from. Well, and speaking of Nikki, like I think for me, my favorite song on the record is "Lights Out," and uh, it's I, you know lots of Stooges elements, the wah wah solo. I said a lot of the mood and catchy ideas in Cowbell. this song. Yeah. I said uh, uh, this this song probably did a lot to hook me for Nikki's next helicopters phase. Yeah, um, just the the energy of it and the the playing and arrangements is so propulsive and just like infectious. It's kind of nuts. 
it, it to me i can draw a line from this song to like high visibility almost mm-hmm. you know um yeah you get the weird intro i didn't is that is that a sample lights out you know like i think I never, that was from a I mean, there used to be this, I don't know if this is what it's called. This is like what my memory immediately jumped to is it was this, this radio show from um, the fifties that okay. was kind of like a, it was almost like a tales from the crypt, but audio version. Got it. And I th- feel like that had a little bit of a resurgence when the internet first started because people were putting that up. I don't know if okay. that's where it's from, but that's what I felt like it was from. <laughs> So, well, it makes sense. There was kind of like with X Files. There was kind of like an alien revival thing that was kind of like a fifty sci-fi revival. Yeah, and people like X Files also like brought up like a big interest in AM radio again. Yeah, like uh, I can't think what the hell the guy's name is. Like the Art Bell. Art Bell. You know, exactly. Stuff, like all that became a bigger deal again. Like it just got more you know visibility. I remember Bar- Mike would lend me Art Bell tapes to listen to when I would drive <laughs> to Michigan State to visit Jessica, and I would just be like, "Whoa!" Because he, you know, he he and I would talk about X Files a lot, and he's like, "Oh, Art Bell did an episode on remote viewing, and X Files just did." I was like, "Oh, okay, this is real." Okay, well, like, Art I, Bell was the internet before the internet. Yeah, like I never know, knew what to think <laughs> of this guy. I was like, "Is this shit real?" Like, it's like talk shows know? with like fucking weirdos that are very yeah. have very specific, you know expertise in certain things that I most people don't care about <laughs> where the guy was like it was like 98 or 99 he's like yeah korea is gonna end the fucking planet and i was like oh like i remember this like driving <laughs> to Lansing, like, what the fuck like yeah it was, it was pretty wild so but yeah you go from lights out into wound uh kind of a noisy i, I wrote like kind of old coc or like melvin's kind of who, sludge punk hardcore who do you, you think know? wrote that one uh, that's got to be Ufe, right? Exactly. Yes, okay. that's that's the one. He has soul credit. Okay. He, has, yeah. he has a couple on this, but his are so like I never really before you couldn't tell so clearly who like in like modern like uh, Maiden records, like you can always tell when it's just the Steve Harris written one, and yeah. when it's like you know it's Yannick Gears and Dickinson or something. Like you can tell when certain people write stuff, um, and I never noticed that until redoing like redoing or re-listening to this stuff again mm-hmm. in like a very specific you know way and i was like wow it's 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 awesome to see how clear the roles were yeah because i feel like maiden had those classic roles you could always tell adrian smith versus um uh oh shit what's his name dave murray solos like well, now, I- now, now we can get that out of like death metal for like okay what are the traits of this guitar players like Kind and I've crazy. kind of like gotten to that point with how much I've, how many years I've taught rock and roll history with like the Beatles, where I can be like, oh, mm-hmm. okay, that's a George song, you know, oh, yeah, that's the yeah. John song, you know, like it's just uh, you, after a while, like, yeah, you kind of get the personalities of, of some of the guys, but yeah, that's that's funny. Like, I didn't even look that up, but after you explaining Ufe a bit more, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is this is an Ufe song, yeah. cool drum solo, uh, mm-hmm. too. It's kind of, kind of interesting, you don't hear that very often, so. And then we end this set with they, which is like uh, here's in tomb doing stoner rock kind of doom, you know, um, some like almost like Nugent stranglehold meandering in the song a little bit while it yeah. cycles through some like kind of crowbar coc kind of southern doom riffage. It's uh, it's an interesting tune. I don't know if it's like one of my favorites, but it's like it gives you a little another flavor of what's happening on this record a bit. Yeah, that's know? that's all Alex Hellid on that okay. song as well. 
So he seemed to be like the Sabbath guy, maybe, it seems like. Maybe. He, his stuff was just, he was able to strip down, like, even his parts of songs. Once you see, like, what songs he wrote completely, yeah, you hell, see, stuff like yeah, that. you can see, like, what his kind of predilections for this stuff are. And it's just, like, a really dead simple fucking catchy riff, mm-hmm. which is yeah. not an easy thing to do. And he didn't really, I mean, after Entombed, after he left Entombed, I don't really think he's done a whole lot since. Yeah, um, he's... He had innate ability for the the like simple kind of like even probably like some of the simple catchy elements that make left hand path and clandestine stand out from like other death metal records is probably some of his innate abilities. I gotta know? I gotta think so. It's all these different personalities that were able to kind of work together. And I think, you know, Nikki knew how to play everything. So he was a great arranger. Yep. You know, and then like, you know, how like, you know, Lars has this arrangement. Well, in the you know, first handful of records him and James were able to arrange stuff in a way that wasn't traditional, but made sense for their sound. And I feel like the, um, I, I get why they did that clandestine reunion because the interaction between, you know, Ufe, Alex and Nikki is really a really fucking interesting core. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's exactly. And again, I, I hate coming back to like the Beatles, but like, I think they kind of were like that, like they were death metal Beatles kind of figures or something. I don't know. That's probably a bad analogy, but that's, it's giving, you know, putting like too much of a spotlight on too. Well, it's, it's as if Ringo was a, a much more capable song. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but they all, you know, everybody in the, in the Beatles sang yeah. on, on songs. So it's like, you know, it's it's interesting. I don't. I think Alex and Ufe live would both do backing vocals. But that's one thing I wanted to mention is that I've seen Entombed with Anderson. I think twice, and then without him, definitely more times. I don't think I ever saw a good show. The first time I ever saw Entombed was I think the Metal Fest you weren't at. I think it was '98. Okay. Um, or did you see Entombed at any of those Milwaukee's? Yeah, I saw him at one. So That's where I that first must, met uh, Dan Zadar for the first time. Okay. That must have been the the one after, I think, the 99 one, where, like, you and Chris, we we kind of healed up a little bit. So, because I remember watching. Yeah, I think so. Because it was just, they did Left Hand Path, and I don't I don't even think Ufe was Evil there. In. They did Evil Lynn. I remember that, because, like, I was watching with Tom Haley, and we were both, like, freaking out, like, fucking Evil Lynn. Was Ufe still? He was still playing with them. So, it was, like. It was basically uh, Peter Starnbund had taken over on drums. Okay, yep. And it was still the full normal lineup, I think. And the last time I saw, there was that, did you go to that MDF with Entombed? Where it was like, Ufe wasn't there. It was basically just LG, Alex. Remember? I don't know. Maybe. MDF, I think I'm like 2000. 2011? I might have gone to that. That might have been the last MDF I was at. So, yeah, I think I did see that one. Yeah, no, I do. I totally It was just, like, bad. It was weird. (laughs) I think it was the same one that uh, Nirvana 2002 played. They did, yep. And they they had to use some of their equipment or something? They had to use Black Breath's uh, uh, pedals because their pedals shit out. Okay. <laughs> yeah, now this is all coming back to me. So I kind of forgot that moment. Yeah. But even it. like the, the live, the monkey pus live record sounds oh, like it's shit. That's not, not good. Like, I don't, I don't know if they're just a studio band because we saw the helicopters and they were great. Yeah. Yeah. But I've never seen entombed good live. Yeah. It's kind of like catatonia. 
Like Catatonia is decent live, but they're they're more of a studio it's like band. Hit and miss sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It's interesting, yeah. but all right, let's get into it. And then we're gonna come back, kind of say our goodbyes and wrap things up. So we've got to ride, shoot straight, and speak the truth, like this with the devil, lights out, wound, and they.
that was they wound lights out and like this with the devil and then we kicked off with the title track so as we kind of bring things to a conclusion here mark and say our goodbyes and end the the nikki anderson sort of era um one last little part that i thought was kind of interesting that they brought up that i think kind of fits with the philosophy of where we've been and it's from the metal maniacs thing and uh chris maycock asks alex he says so is entombed a rock band and not a metal band and he says yeah comes the response some people might say otherwise but it's all about music and i know we have more in common with rock bands than metal bands people should just listen to music and not look for a category because it seems kind of misguiding or seems like people haven't listened to the albums when they say Swedish death metal Kings or something like that. No band likes to be put into categories. I don't want any limitations. We want people to listen. We listen to a lot of different music. Everybody in the band has different musical tastes and we all contribute and try to make something out of it. If we would put a label on ourselves, it's more of a rock or punk rock attitude uh, than metal. Um, you know, 1990, same question, same answer. Alec thinks for a moment. Yeah, I think you get a different answer depending on who you're asking in the band. But I personally, yeah, always. When we started the band, we didn't sign some contract that said we had to play a certain way. There are narrow-minded people, and they'll ask you why you do something. And the answer is because it feels good. I don't like limitations. Rock music includes blues, up to metal, and everything in between. So, final, it was, final it, thoughts. It was yeah. real weird uh, to, to think that a band called entombed that we knew is like, you know, the epitome of death metal could be anything but that. <laughs> I know. I know. kind of had to make that adjustment, you know, uh, kind of like paradise loss and mm-hmm. and some of that, you know, kind of moving, moving beyond, you know? So, you know, kind of as we bring things to sort of a conclusion here, I guess, um, you know, we talked a little bit, I'm looking at my notes, you know, we talked about how weird 1997 was, you know, um, <laughs> these extreme metal bands that were sort of growing up and were kind of angsty about repeating ideas. I think that's something we we hit on with the, the Finnish stuff, but um, For sure. it is sad, you know, in the past year, March of 2021, uh, we lost uh, Lars Gorin uh, from bile duct cancer at the age of 49. So um we are going to close with his piano piece, uh, 666, after we play a couple less uh, kind of shortcuts from from to ride here. But, um, yeah, we got boats. Um, nice. I, I wrote nice, sexy, swanky Danzig riff. You know, it's like the one when the dying comes a little bit. Uh, I mean, it's it's the most kids. blues song on the album. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> kids, you know, kind of feeling a little too. But also um, I put a uh, blues hammer. In oh, yeah. yeah. A, yeah. <laughs> we, just, like, maybe a, we just watched. Uh, uh, Ghost World, Ghost World, yeah, uh, the Criterion version <laughs> up north because we have picking blues. Yeah, <laughs> it's nice just to go through old random movies. Like, oh, what what do we have? Like, oh, okay, pick three and we'll watch. You know, one of them tonight. Yeah, Let's I'm uh, on the video store again. So a couple of our friends that podcast listeners wouldn't know, but a couple of my buddies that Mark's met a few times. Actually, speaking of Kiss, uh, Luke went to Kiss with us. Uh, mm-hmm. But my buddy Luke and and Austin. We have a group chat that's called uh, you guys up for some reggae tonight. Because <laughs> like I showed that movie to them in the, in the basement theater and like they just obsessed over that. Like that's like the best moment when that guy just fucking douchebag college you guys up for some reggae tonight. I want. <laughs> and I just I have these visceral memories of New Moon where like like the fucking frat guy is coming in to buy like Bob Marley and Sublime Records and just being like, oh, God damn it. It's like. I mean, I just felt like, uh, you know, a, a much younger version of just like Steve Buscemi in that movie. 
Yes. Yeah. I totally like understand. nobody understood anything I liked. Yeah. And I was always like the, like when he's at the, like having just this irrational rage of, you know, you pull up to the, have some more kids. Jesus Christ, you're in slow motion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that does explain a lot. Yeah. yeah. I think if I didn't teach and stay like grounded with like the youth, I probably would definitely have a lot more of that. And I, I definitely do. Don't get me wrong, but it's just, like, I do, but I don't get as mad as he does. Because no, I, I feel like I'm kind of his age now than that he was in the movie. Well, I think too, like he's absolutely like a miserable human, and you are not like you actually oh, have yeah. like joy in your life and like relationships with humans. But this stuff. is like a mix of like this is like the Darth Vader. This is what you could become. Yeah, that's true. Thing and like some of the people I met, you know, through the record store, just these like complete fucking weirdos <laughs> that did not compromise in anything in their life and. That's all they could talk about. It was just the weird little one aspect of life. For and sure. And then like meanwhile, like, you know, us and the manager Mike and like we're pretty, you know, well, well read, well like worldly people. We, yeah. we don't just know about, you know, the certain type of uh your seventy eight blues. Yeah. 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 That or you know, some type of like PA equipment or something like yeah. all the audiophile people. That's like a whole nother every every subgenre has a has an extreme to it. For sure, for sure. And then we get Wreckage, which we both kind of acknowledge as, uh, I just wrote, uh, angry, filthy, sonic slabs. Uh, great ending. One of the highlights of the record. It's just a, a really cool fucking song to, to Yeah, the, the way that the, the drums and, and lyrics are go- going back and forth with that, that, you know, I'm a wreck, then dan, dan, and it just keeps like building and building. It just all this stuff is like really anthemic, which mm-hmm. is not what you really think of with, you know, with coming from death metal. Yeah. But I and guess then, the, the left-hand path is anthemic. That's true. That's true. You know, they have their moments. Um, I mean, even Evil Lynn, going back earlier, like has mm-hmm. this sort of like anthemic quality to it. And then we get 666. You know, it's melancholy, appropriate coda for, for LG, indeed, you know, to kind of close things out. So, um, And he's playing piano. Yes. Yeah. Multi-instrumentalist. So, um, in, in honor of, of LG. Yeah. But uh, a couple of things as we kind of wrap things up here. Um new patrons um tim uh, uh Shemeg- Shemegner, I, I believe um and nolan bradley um and jesse levy um who have been long-term friends of the podcast but uh yeah kind of just both jumped in and they actually wrote some messages um nolan bradley wrote in he says i just wrapped up the final venom episode and the whole series made for some amazing listening normally these super long dives always seem incredibly daunting for me to get uh get through even if it's a band I really enjoy, not this series. After each installment, I was left wanting till the next one dropped, which had me saying to myself, what, another four plus hours of Venom drop? <laughs> Fuck yeah. Pretty sure I've mentioned this before, but these were pretty amazing with all the testimonials you guys gathered and giving Mantis all that time to speak was truly great stuff. Learning about all the bands he worked with was a real highlight for me, some some of which were also a surprise. That band Scooter in particular, um, who I'm familiar with from the Mortal Kombat Annihilation soundtrack. I didn't know that. No, I didn't um, know that either. It can't be stated enough. The incredible work you guys put into these dives and the Venom series is just another example of this dedication you guys have to this podcast. Thanks for all the work and can't wait to see what's next. So thanks thanks for being a patron, Nolan, and thanks for uh, the kind words. Yeah, thank and you. This is a pretty cool uh, letter that Jesse Levy, and he Jesse Levy, I think, has been like a facebook friend since like i started the facebook page for the podcast so like the name sounds super familiar to me 
Yeah, so I think he's commented our stuff a lot. He just uh, just decided to to become a uh, a patron here. So I, I read this. Um, he says, "Hey y'all, not sure uh, if people do introductions. I just added them to the uh, the Mighty Raven Dusk. Um, but I thought I'd do mine. I'll try not to make it too long. But being a writer, I sometimes tend to be a bit wordy." Unlike a lot of other metal fans, I didn't fully immerse myself into metal until my mid twenties. I grew up in an evangelical Christian household that kind of that kind of music was uh, frowned upon. I got introduced to grunge from an early age because of my older brother, along with some of the other classics like Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, as well as some of the crossover hard rock stuff like Ministry, Rollin' Bands, Tool. When I got into high school, I started really getting deep into church and stopped listening to anything that wasn't Christian. I did discover some of the more underground Christian punk, hardcore metal bands, but even a lot of those were frowned upon in church circles. So I eventually even abandoned that type of music. In my early 20s, I started questioning my religion pretty heavily. This was around the time the U.S. was preparing to invade Iraq in the wake of 9-11. When I finally left religion for good, I started to realize that I actually hated a lot of the music that I was pretending to like. (laughs) Shit like Dave Matthews and John Mayer. I wanted to dive back into metal. And I was in a place where I realized that I wasn't going to be dragged down to hell by a demon if I listened to Morbid Angel. There were two things that really uh, re-sparked my love of heavy uh, heavy music. One of them was Sam Dunn's documentary metal, Headbanger's Journey, and the other was Requiem Metal Podcast. I discovered the podcast when I was searching for podcasts on heavy metal and iTunes. I found some others uh, that varied from good to awful, but with Requiem, I was immediately hooked. The first episode I listened to was Emperor and the Night Side Eclipse, uh, an album I had recently discovered and absolutely loved. The thing I loved about Mark and Jason was that they were both big fans of the music, but also very introspective and intellectual and spoke eloquently about the music without coming off as pretentious. While I can't say I've listened to every episode, it's hard to find time raising four kids, working full time and working on my writing. Um, (laughs) I've been listening on and off from the verse Emperor episodes and honestly say that Mark and Jason uh, are the reason I got into Bolt Thrower, Paradise Lost, Catatonia, My Dying Bride, Anathema, and a handful of others. They also led me to some other non-metal music that I now love, such as Nick Cave and Steve Wilson. Um, let's see. Oh, here we go. I've been on a week stay at home vacation the past week as my kids are on spring break. During this time, I've been working on a new battle jacket and listening to the newish Bolt Thrower episodes. When I heard Andreas speaking passionately about his connection to the podcast and his generosity in giving back to Mark and Jason, I decided it was time I joined the Patreon and give back to them for helping shape my love of heavy music for the past 15 or so years. Mark and Jason have been very gracious and friendly and even sent me a file of the Flotsam and Jetsam bonus episode when I lamented to them that I wanted to join the Patreon, but the money was super tight at the time. I do remember emailing that to them. Now, yeah, but- yeah. They've even helped answer some questions I've had about my own podcast, Metal Apocalypse which is currently on a very extended hiatus after my co-host moved to Chicago and has been very busy with their drag performances. If you get a chance, though, check it out and see what you think. Anyways, uh, this has already been long, and I have grocery shop. Okay, so he just kind of says goodbye, and he says, uh, you know, mighty uh, Raven Dark Warriors, glad to be here. So pretty pretty cool little That's thing. That's awesome. Uh, it's, it's nice to be held in the same regard as uh, the banger. Yeah, you know? no, it's, it's very cool. So. Yep. Um, and then, you know, I posted something about this being kind of like our 15 year anniversary and uh, Bjorn Larson from, um, oh my God, God Macabre, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, he just says, what a journey. I discovered you guys from searching metal in my podcast 10 years or so ago. So much crap until I found you guys. Here's the many more. <laughs> Sean Price said, thanks for many hours of entertainment and an enlightenment headbanging. Uh, Jason Andraki said, not hyper, not hyper, hyperbole. To say your podcast is life-changing and a lifesaver. Thanks for the metal and the intelligent discussions. Kyle Doman, thank you for the years of wonderful listening. You've given us all. 
So that was pretty cool. And then I think one last comment um, from Black Knife on Instagram. And I don't know what the real, I don't know if it's a band. Uh, I'm not quite sure, but it says, I uh, just had a friend recommend this show. It's in my everyday work commute. Listen now. I'm at the end of part one of the Venom episode. So informative and awesome. Just wanted to say thanks and uh, cheers for the killer dedication. And uh, I just kind of said, you know, thank you back. And he says, uh, holy, yeah, sweet. So much to dive into. Loving it so far. So good stuff. That's great. Yeah. It's the, it's not, I mean, we have this like 15 year history as well. So it's when people jump, like, I, cause I found shows where I'm like, holy shit, there's that many back episodes. Yeah. Like yeah. it's, uh, it's just awesome to find something that you click with like that too. Yep. I you just, know, if it's uh, a podcast or YouTube thing or, you know, I found Instagram one page, whatever. I really dig. I don't know if you ever discovered it. Uh, it's called evolution of horror podcast. It's a guy who works for the BFI British film Institute. And you, you uh, told me about it. I haven't, I don't think I've yeah. listened to it yet. I've kind of like digested quite a bit from that, especially teaching this horror class and stuff, you know, cause it's, it's like quicker than watching the movies, rewatching mm-hmm. a lot of the movies. Cause I've seen a lot of the horror movies, but it's like, oh man, I got, do I have two hours to like rewatch it? I'm like, oh, I could just listen to analysis podcast that reminds me of some like things that I probably forgot, you know? So it's yeah. kind of nice to do that, but uh, yeah, we appreciate everything. And so if you want to uh, get in contact with us, you know, shoot us a message on Facebook, uh, Jason and Mark, uh, check us out on Instagram, Requiem model podcast at uh, podcast Requiem on Twitter. Um, those are all great ways to get a hold of us. You can email us uh podcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you do want to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com uh, forward slash Requiem Metal, I think, or Requiem Podcast. Um, and then we have a website, requiemmetal.com, where that used to be the place that you could find all of our episodes. Now you can find all of our episodes in our new feeds. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, so <laughs> the website doesn't really – I mean, you could look at it for some – yeah, novelties. I guess there's uh, there. you can buy uh, t-shirts there. Uh, and some that's right. Yeah, you can go to our store. I need like to upgrade that. that after I move. Uh, make some make some new shirts, perhaps. Yeah, we we've, we've kind of talked about trying to send some shirts out to maybe some of the people that uh, we've interviewed and things like that. Well, trying- yeah, I was thinking about doing a new design and also just and not do the the previous things we've done. They're fine, but they're like those print on demand services, and I'd yeah. rather just do it with. Um, I got I a friend of mine who prints shirts, so. I'd rather the just guy that did uh, my cross country stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, nice Mitch so. Prince, uh, yep. if you're in the area or anywhere, I guess. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd much rather just do that and figure out like, okay, what sizes should we get, and then get them printed. Then we get a better chunk. We can get better prices, and we also get more money out of it. So yeah. that'd be sweet. So we like money. Um, you know, we no, do this. We, it's an un- unfortunately, we're not in uh, Star Trek Next Generation terms yes. where we could just do this as a living. But yeah, uh, yeah. we still got to make money other ways. Yeah. So if you guys want to donate to uh, to a nonprofit, uh, people that you know, we donate all our time doing this stuff just because we, we love what we're doing. So we, we do appreciate the people that, you know, do patron stuff for us. And uh, if you want to make up just a one-time PayPal donation or something like that, you can do that. Get a hold of us. We'll kind of tell you how. So yeah, and um, actually, if anybody on the West Coast is anywhere near Walla Walla, Washington, in July, I will be at the um, Blood of Gods. The it's a this wine metal that's zine the wine thing you do. Oh yeah, yeah, that I've been doing the covers for since it's got to be almost five years now, maybe. Yeah, um, but I'll talk about it more once it gets close. But uh, I'm their invited guest, so I'll be out there sure. June 20th. That's awesome. 
Walla Walla, all our Walla Walla fans out in Washington are. Or any Washington staff, anybody wants to get out of Portland for a while or uh, any place else nearby. Uh, it's almost uh, it's almost Linda sold out. There. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Maybe she could come down. They could do a little wine tour. That'd be cool. I, I heard it's a very, the only thing I've ever heard about Walla Walla, Washington was like, uh, like Bugs Bunny talking about Acme products back in the sixties oh. <laughs> or something. So, uh, but I guess it's like this really interesting, like wine area now. So if anybody's hmm. close and they want to, I'll have some exclusive stuff I'm going to take That's there. So pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been, uh, it's been fun. It's been a while since Mark and I have kind of talked about stuff because we actually did part three and four Venom as like one episode and then it kind of got carved in half. So like, which worked out for my schedule and yours probably that. Oh yeah. yeah or something sure. else. So, but uh, yeah, we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back soon and uh, enjoy Entombed, enjoy some death and roll history and uh, enjoy boats, wreckage and 666 in honor of uh, LG forever remembered and uh cool so for requiem metal podcast i am jason and i'm mark